Rich Mellon from Trapping Inc. TV, uh, Alberta Trapper Extraordinaire, uh, Scuttlebutt Podcast. Um, Rich, it's great to have you on. Thank you for having me, man. I appreciate it. So I know of you from uh, the show, uh, Trapping Inc. TV, and from your podcast that you and your wife, Sandy, put on. Um, but I'm sure there's a lot more to the story there. So you want to maybe take us back to the beginning and talk about uh, how you got started in the outdoors. I was born. <laughs> <laughs> the North, the North, it, it, it's a life. And uh, especially I'm, I'm 61 now. And back in those days, I mean, I was 18, I think, before I had first ate beef. You know, everything was, was looser or elk we didn't really care much for deer wasn't wasn't a lot of deer around back then if you can imagine uh-huh. uh and that's just something you know deer is something that came in with uh with agriculture and we uh you were just born into it i mean that that, that was some of the first things that you remembered we started as as trappers i mean uh, uh, i can remember my grandpa and my grandpa died by the time i was four but i can remember trapping uh pack rats and uh and squirrels and that in, in the granaries with him when I was little. I, me- I remember that. That's, that's about the only memory I have my, of my grandpa other than when he, when he was dying. And, and that all happened but by the time I was, I was four. So, you know, it, it, something like that is so ingrained. Uh, I get asked so many times, you know, how did I get into traffic? Like, like it was a choice or something? No, <laughs> it wasn't a choice. It, no, I mean, tr- truly, yeah. <laughs> I, I, it, it was the life. It was the life. And I mean, it's like so many other people born into situations where, you know, uh, well, it's like asking somebody, how, how did they decide to, to, uh, to be Irish or, or whatever? Well, I was born. I mean, that, that was the way it is. And um, it was just the, our, our life. Um, I can remember, you know, when, by the time we were in elementary school, uh, the city we, that we live next to now, Grand Prairie, is over 70,000 people. But at the time, uh, it was when my brother and I were trapping rats it would have been I don't know six seven thousand people and we would leave elementary school and uh you know it was if it hadn't snowed too much you know by the time things were freezing usually we have ice here by the middle of October uh then we'd we'd take our bikes otherwise we'd walk but it wasn't that far over to there was a bunch of ponds and that on the on the edge of the the town and and we'd strap on our skates and we'd go check muskrats uh, we'd have muskrat sets out there. We have, I don't know your area um, or how it is there, but here the muskrats build push-ups on top of the ice as the ice is forming. And that push-up uh, is, is, is just made out of uh, vegetation off the bottom. And what it is, is he's building a little hut in there that he can go up and get a breath of air in. Because yeah. his food is, is right there. And he can only swim so far under with one breath of air and then he eats another breath of air and then he wants to go down and he wants to bring up food and amazingly a muskrat is just about the only animal that can eat underwater the way its lips are designed it can it can actually bite off vegetation and chew it and swallow it without drowning which is probably a good thing that i can't do that or i'd, I'd have died overweight a long time ago <laughs> i've been accused of eating fried chicken in the shower at the end of the day <laughs> But we would go and, uh, you know, we would take turns. It's amazing this, the things, when you look back at it now, we were talented. You know, here's, here's a couple of kids, you know, eight eight years old. Uh, I was probably the, the eldest, eight, nine years old. 
and we would go with a pair of hockey skates on. We would go from uh, uh, one push up to the next, and one one person would pop it open and check for muskrat. If it was muskrat, he hands to the other guy. The other guy would start skinning it, and uh, by the time we, we, that was reset and and uh, we were moved on to the next one, the the, the previous muskrat was skinned. And we we would take turns, right? Yeah, and we were quite the efficient little team. That it, sounds it, like it some amazing. serious business. <laughs> <laughs> you you cannot believe how much uh, you know uh, when we'd start to have have vehicles and that. By the time you know you're 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 14, you can have a vehicle, and, and you know you in our country you were supposed to have that's a learner's license, and you were supposed to have an adult with you. Well, nobody ever ever. I mean, you, we got caught many many times, but the fishing game or the or the officers knew who we were and. You know, like don't 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 be out on the on the main roads kind of thing. And, but we would we would drive all over the place, and we'd have permission everywhere. And and um, you know, you stop on a pair of skates on a Saturday, and you might go, you know, ten miles cross country and everything else wearing a pair of skates, right? <laughs> <laughs> they were never very sharp, but at so any you, point, you had but, quite a bit of water yeah. around that area. Yeah, there's a lot of potholes here. We're just we're just about the northern edge of the of the uh, prairie uh, pothole region. Like, actually, if you get down around Edmonton and uh, you know Edmonton to uh, to Red Deer, there that's the major prairie pothole that, that raises raises the uh, vast majority of ducks that fly on the flyways, and and that's where the vast majority of the muskrats come from uh, in Alberta. Like, I know people that will go trap muskrats for for two weeks, and and they'll end up with five six thousand muskrats. Oh, that's amazing. It's not like uh, it's not like the uh, uh, what's it called in Wisconsin, the Dells in Wisconsin, where uh, you know they, they might they might get ten thousand in, in the same amount of time because they they actually lease from the state, I believe it is. They lease by by the acre or whatever. I met met some people in at the NTA a couple of years ago in Escanaba, Michigan, and they were fascinating to talk to. One fella who was I think I believe his name was. Herman. He was high up in North American fur auctions. He was in, the, I believe it was the New Jersey swamps. He did muskrats there, and they yeah, were they, they, were they had a lot of rats there. I I know they they've got nutria there now that that are raising hell with the rats, but they that is great rat country. What on earth is a nutria? <laughs> well, we don't have them here in Maine, so I can't. Uh, there. I don't have a lot of experience with them, but they're, my understanding, is a very oversized muskrat that were introduced back in the 1940s uh, for the as part of the fur farming industry, and they have kind of gone wild and exploded in places like Louisiana and the Northwest, uh, and uh, in places in, in New Jersey as well. Where did they come from? Uh, you know what? I don't know, but while you're talking, I'm going to look it up. <laughs> Isn't it great I, to have I hear about them when I <laughs> technology is awesome. Uh they're native to South America. Okay. Okay. And so they, they were a valuable fur source at one point? Yeah. Back, you know, thirties and forties when there was a good fur market. I, I think you could sell just about anything at the time and people saw how uh they were a, a larger version of the muskrat and thought it would be a good idea to bring them in. Oh, okay, okay. It's it's funny how, how things like that happen though, and when you have 
you know, animal movements or, or, you know, when they start moving into new areas, like, uh, I have a friend who lives in Southern Ontario. So he's probably actually south of you. And yeah. he, they, they're starting to have possums show up mm-hmm. and believe it or not, there are people, biologists within the government that are, are, are looking to protect the biologists, even though it's an invasive species and they're there because they're saying it's, it's climate change causing or whatever. And just across the border, the possum is the biggest pest ever. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's, that's how silly people are, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. They are just starting to show up about five, six hours drive south of me, uh, of where I am. So it's uh, and, and gray fox as well. Um, we, we never had gray fox in the state for a long time, and they've started to move north. So, yeah, definitely uh, some changes. I would love to catch a gray fox. I've, they, they look so pretty. I, uh, I've, I've never – we on our, on our big trap line, we have few, very few fox. We live in a, a country that's, that's tough for fox, yet if you go north of us, even further north, you know, all through the territories, Alaska, and that, there's lots of red fox. Mm-hmm. Just our our particular area. I think we have we have still too much snow. We get too much snow for the fox. But um, getting back to how it all started, it was just it was just part of life. You know, we were mm-hmm. we we grew up. Uh, we hunted. We fished. We uh, uh, we trapped. If you uh, looked up Jack Pine Savage in the dictionary, there's a picture of my brother and I together. You know, <laughs> 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 and we. Uh, we enjoyed it. We, we enjoyed the ride. We got in on that um, on the, the the big boom in the '80s, when the early '80s, when uh, links were running over a thousand dollars a hide. I had one that uh, at that time we we were sending our fur to the Thunder Bay Fur Market, which I think ended up being uh, bought out by what's now Fur Harvesters. It was one of the many buys that ended up, you know, for, forming Fur Harvesters, but. I, I got like thirteen hundred dollars for this this one uh, this one lynx, and that was back before there were quota, and that was back before like you know wherever you trapped you could you caught whatever you caught right. Okay. Uh, life has changed now, where we you know only if you have a registered fur area do you have um, any of the quota animals, uh, and uh, you know they're the only ones that there's the quota is a maximum that you can take. So we, we don't have any minimums. Like some places, like Ontario has. Yeah, they have beaver. If you have a trap line. Yeah, they have a minimum. You have to get 75% of your quota every year in order to keep your, your trap line. Um, it's it's little. Every province has its own laws, just like every state has its own laws. But most of Canada is broke up into registered fur, uh, uh, fur trap lines. And what that means is that they all of the public land, here we call it crown land, you, you would call yep. it public land, um, all of the public land is divided up into trap lines. And in Alberta, that happened in 1925. Okay. They, uh, yeah, they divided everything up. The average size of a registered uh, uh, fur trap line in Alberta is two townships. And uh, are you familiar with townships? Well, a township here is six miles by six miles. Yes, exactly. So that's the average size is two. There are some, as you go further north, uh, they thought it was, less valuable place for, for trapping that. But as you go farther north, some of them are 30 townships in size. Wow. And uh, that's that's the most wealthy fur area in the world, let me tell you. <laughs> now, can, can one person uh, uh, own more than one registered trap line? Yes. Okay. Yes, you can. Uh, there is a 
it's kind of a straw man thing that's going on where they say that people are, are buying trap lines. Because we buy and sell the trap line. You buy and sell the assets and and the uh, you have the rights, the exclusive right to that trap line, that area to trap. Like I have, my, ta- uh, my trap line is four townships. Yep. So it's 12 miles by 12 miles or 144 square miles of, of, of traffic. And I have the only rights to trap there. And what I bought when I bought it is uh, there was three cabins on it. There was an old snowmobile and, and that kind of stuff. So I, I, I ended up paying for that. Yeah. Uh, and I have to do a full report every year that, that shows that I'm trapping because people have, especially when you get over towards the mountains, uh, you know, in Alberta, we have uh, the eastern side of the Rocky Mountains and the Rockies divide us from B.C., and uh, those eastern uh, uh, slope of the mountains is very, very popular for, for hunting and, you know, like bighorn sheep and all that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of people that have bought trap lines over there. Basically, they build a nice big cabin. Yeah, on a hunting them cabin, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's not legal. That's not legal. That was not the whole idea behind trapping uh, the trap lines or, or anything else. But, you know, you have four doctors that go together, and they oh, bought a, a trap line for six $600,000. Wow. You know, like... That can never ever be paid for, right? You know, by by the uh, by the fur, you know, or but when you, when you take a, a zero off of there and, and go go to sixty thousand dollars, which is what I paid for my trap line, uh, my current trap line, and and I bought that. Uh, well, this would be my sixth year on it now. I've paid for it already with fur, you know. Wow. And and yeah, yeah. And so I mean, there has to be some realism, but. I'm not advocating the government get more involved in their lives. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, it's interesting that you you talking about those trap lines and the guys that that I talk with in Alaska um, have a similar system where you you can buy a trap line from someone uh, essentially by buying the gear in their agreement not to not to trap there in in the cabins, but but it's not controlled by the government. Um, you you have any thoughts like? Is is one system better than the other? Well, my claim is backed by law, by a by a basically a deed. Yeah. And so I think that's better because as the world gets more crowded, those old conventions, those old handshake conventions, aren't going to hold up. It's today's people don't have the same respect, you know, for uh, you know for historic principles that we, we've always had. You know, and I, I, I see it all the time. Like, I mean, we, of course, with the TV show, you know, we, we air on YouTube and we air on Amazon Prime and all that kind of stuff. We have an incredible reach. And so people from all over the world contact us, and, uh, but mostly fellows from the U.S. And that is the number one concern is that people, you know, intruding on their area or on their trap line. You know, like people talk about how you might have, six different people sat underneath a, a bridge for me, that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. So I understand the difficulty of the whole idea that, you know, that I have 144 square miles that I have exclusively. I can, I, I can uh, sign as many juniors as I want uh, as long as I'm producing fur, and I do produce a lot of fur. As long as I'm producing fur, I'm, I'm doing what I'm, I'm honoring what, how the system was set up. You know, it's just mm-hmm. like, you know, the Second Amendment uh, with you folks and that, I mean, it was it had a principle about why it was set up. And that was that, you know, no invading force or government could, could you know, overtake the, the people, right? The people right. had the right to defend themselves. 
and people lose that idea because they, you know, they, they lose the idea and say, well, you don't need an automatic weapon to, to hunt deer. Well, it wasn't about hunting deer. Yeah. It was, it was uh, for the people to stand up for their rights. And that was the, the, the same principle that was behind setting up registered trap lines was to make sure that trap lines were being used. Because before that, I mean, the areas around, you know, uh, metropolitan areas where, where, where most of the traffic took place. And, of course, there was lots of theft. There was lots of, of wars and, and, and fighting and that. You know, somebody needed money, you know, in, in the hungry 30s, uh, you know, a muskrat was, was, was worth a buck, you know, and, and you couldn't work in a factory for, for a buck a day, but you could go out and catch, you know, maybe 20, 30 muskrats in a day. Mm-hmm. So it was, that was really big money, and it became a, you know, how do we control this? Well, then they had to, they, by splitting it up, they forced people to, to, to actually, you know, either live out on their trap line or move further in that. That was why in Alberta we're allowed to buy, or we're allowed to uh, build cabins on our trap line. And it's because we're allowed to live. We're allowed to live there the, the, the year round. Okay. And the whole idea was was to utilize the, the fur, you know, that it was, you know, that there was, it wasn't, uh, you know, being over-harvested in one area and not being touched in another, just by, by simple, you know, logistics of, of what is easy access, right? Yeah, it's an interesting concept. Um, I, the one drawback that I would see personally is I'm, I, I always like to explore different areas and I'm, I'm thinking, well, what if I wanted, there's nobody trapping in this particular drainage and I wanted to go check that out and try trapping. And I suppose you could, you could talk to the guy who has the registered line and maybe sign on as a, a you call it a junior? Yes. Yeah. And you know what? That is happening more and more because now there's been, uh, we've had a change in government and and there's been a lot more focus on whether or not people are actually using the trap lines and what the use is. Like my son is a junior on the trap line in central Alberta, um, um, near the sound of Rocky mountain house uh, in the mountains. And the old fellow that owns the trap line is 82 years old. He has a wonderful cabin, built a beautiful log cabin on that. And he likes to go out and cut the grass in the yard in the summertime and watch the moose in the, down in the muskeg below the cabin. That, that, that's, that's what he lives for. He's, he's starting to suffer from dementia. That his son is a is a engineer in the oil patch and has no interest in trapping, but loves to be out of the cabin with his dad. So the only way they can keep it is if somebody is trapping it, and so that's my son. Okay. My son is out there trapping, and, and uh, he does his fur reports every year, and and everybody's happy because it's being utilized. Yeah. You know, and which which was the whole design afterwards. You know, like there there are people that as more and more juniors got signed and, and there were people who got everybody's got their own axe right right yeah and so a lot of people get into this while it's you know people are, are using it for hunting camps and all that because these people want the hunting camp or they want the the uh, the trap line so then when you know they started cracking down and they're, they're on the fur reports and there had to be um you know so much fur taken every year and and whether it was by you or a junior didn't matter, well then, which is the way it always was. There was never a difference between whether it was the junior or the senior that was catching the fur. Now, all of a sudden, people are complying by having juniors on there, then, you know, the people are, are, are mad because that wasn't wasn't <laughs> the end they wanted, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the folks are abiding by the law, the fur's being trapped, you know, the land's being managed, and... Uh, but that's not what they wanted. That you know, that wasn't their end game. But you know, in today's world, with with coyotes, wolves, and and uh, you know the issues we've got there, we need trappers more than ever. Like 
I notice a lot of my my friends in that throughout the states are are not really fur trappers as as they're they're animal damage control trappers. Yes. And you know because there's there is so much conflict between civilization and the wild. And you know the trappers are that last buffer. You know we're we're the last people between. You know. I've said this many, many times, but, you know, in Alberta, on average, we ship between forty and 45,000 coyotes to the auction every single year, okay? You can imagine what it would cost the day the trappers don't do that for free anymore. Yeah, and if the coyote price crashes, then uh, that we might see a little bit of that. You might. You certainly might. Uh, I don't know if it's going to crash or not. I don't think so. I don't know what the heck Canada Goose is doing with this buyback thing. I think that on the on the surface used to be such a laugh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. They're probably. I, I'm trying to figure out whether they're going to go into people's closets and start clipping the the their trim off their parkas or what. Well, I mean, just even go do a search out into Gigi or or whatever you know, whatever uh, reseller that's you've the, got that's around. That's the Craigslist in Canada. They, Okay, Craigslist. You, yeah. you, you've taken and how, how many? How many uh, uh, are the Canada Goose jackets are out there for sale? <laughs> wow, seriously, none, none here. Uh, no, I know. I, when they come up here, and, and you know, that full expedition is a very expensive uh, jacket. You know, and if you find one that comes up for sale at eight hundred bucks or something, you you want to be all over it as, as long as it's not junk and it just doesn't happen. You know, it just does not happen. So I don't know where this is coming from. I think, you know what I think? I think Canada Goose bought themselves two years. Yeah. They bought themselves two years from, from the antis and they're hoping something else changes in between or they've got another program or something that's going to going to take take the, the load off. But if coyotes are still popular in two years' time, they're going to be buying them. That's a, that's a great point. That that wouldn't surprise me a bit if, if they just, they were under pressure and they needed to buy some time. Yep. Absolutely, that's that's my thoughts. But I hope so. Uh, Canada Goose, like uh, we're all you know, like our top end, our heavies, like out of you know Alberta and Saskatchewan. Saskatchewan has the best case in the world, uh, and uh, that they just they're a small coyote. They're they're fine furred. Even the males are are, are pretty fine furred, but those females are just like silk. They have the white bellies, and they have the best in the world we we're, we we can run them you know close close compromise but we're not as good as, as theirs but those really high-end things don't go to canada goose yeah they, they go to italy and and a lot of people don't realize that you know like um mark downey who owns uh fur harvesters in, in canada I've, I've dealt a lot with mark and and i did a podcast with them after you know they had they, they tried to have a um an online auction. He says, he says the high end guys couldn't get here. And he says, they do not buy things they don't see. And that only makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, none, none, none of us would buy something high end. I mean, if, if, if you're buying something cheap, sure, you do it online or whatever, but not, not when it's high end, not when, when you're looking for something particular. So I, I, I understand, you know, Canada goose is a big volume buyer and they, um, kind of like uh like mcdonald's like they hi- buy the whole cow you know so mcdonald's not only gets the flank but it gets the ribeye yeah but it all gets g- grounded to burger right 
<laughs> anyway, <laughs> we so, wandered a long ways away from where we started. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I want to know, I, going back to your trap line, I want to know if 144 square miles is enough to keep you busy. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on it every four days, and I have a little over 308, uh, 300 kilometers of, of line. So, I don't know, 180, 100, 180 miles, something like that. That's, yeah, that's and, a good way. Huh? Yeah, well, I mean, you got to think about, you know, it's, especially like Martin and Fisher are, are big uh, animals for us, as well as lynx and otter and that. And you can have a trap every every quarter mile. So you think about that, you know, how, how often when you square out 144 square miles, how many traps can be set, you know? Like mm -hmm. I, I probably have 400 Martin boxes ha hanging out there all the time because we're in a remote area and I don't have to worry about people, you know, uh, vandalism or people stealing them. Why you steal a plywood box, I don't know, but people have done it. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I don't, uh, you know, I've got nowhere near one every quarter mile. You know what I mean? Because some areas just don't don't have the uh, the area that or the, the habitat that carries them. Like we do have some uh, in the center of the trap line. There's a a big area of tamarack muskeg, and it's probably, uh, I don't know, might, might even be a quarter, maybe as much as a third of the center of that 144 square miles that, that is tamarack muskeg, and really doesn't hold much. It hold, uh, lakes travel in the wintertime because there are rabbits in there, but as far as Fisher and uh, and Martin and that, they're just they're just travelers that will go through there, and that's, you know, that, that young of the year dispersing, and, and they'll move through, and so... I don't target them because it's really a low, um, a low uh, percentile area, and you end up catching more more squirrels and stuff again. Like I don't, I don't need more squirrels in my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's that's awesome. Did you have did you have to do a lot of trail cutting and moving traps in and stuff when you bought the line? Oh yes, the fellow that I bought it from ended up uh, getting sick, and he. Uh, ended up getting dementia and so he hadn't trapped it for probably eight years uh when i went back through and i looked at uh the fur records and that uh, all of a sudden like eight years before he no longer had a single quota animal and a quota animal you know like the the um the senior has to take a quota animal in and it gets registered and tagged so our quota animals are fisher otter wolverine and lynx and, you know, like my maximum number of fisher for a year is 18. My maximum number of lynx is 22. Uh, otter is a dozen, and, and wolverine is one. And but so what happened was they, they were still doing a fur report, which anybody could, could do for him. When, when you do the quota, you're signing it's an affidavit, right? But the fur report's a, di a different deal altogether. So all of a sudden, they, they started catching a whole bunch more beaver and muskrats, beaver and muskrats, beaver and muskrats. And, and, uh, and so I told me that his son was then fudging the records because they, they no longer were catching any quota animals. But when we took it over, it also showed that. One of the things that people don't understand is that the more you trap an area, the more... Uh, useful it becomes the more productive it becomes when we took it over all of our animals were old uh old apex predators so for instance i was allowed 18 fisher a year 
and I was allowed whatever martin I wanted to catch, right? Well, martin is smaller than a fisher, so everything eats a martin. The first year, by the time I had to quit, and like I still had a month of season left, and I, I had to I had to pull all of my Martin and Fisher traps because I uh, I was at 20 fish Fisher, mm-hmm. I was two over my quota, you know. Like I mean, you go out one time, you you know you make a check and you have five, and the next time you go you have eight. You know what I mean? Like right. it's like boom. But at the same time, I had seven Martin. Okay, <laughs> almost yep. obvious what was going on there. Up. Well, yeah, you're, you're a biologist. You, you know exactly what's going on. We, the, the vast majority of that 20, one was a female because the females are smaller. And all, everything else was like big old males, right? And uh, I, at the same time that I caught 20 Fisher, I caught seven Martin. You know, it just, it, there, there was, and they were all in one little tiny corner of the, uh, of the trap line down southeast. Over the years now, uh, I probably average in that dozen to 18 fisher every year, but now I'm running over 40 martin a year. Yeah. And the martin has spread out right across the the trap line. You know, and it's the same thing with lynx. Like my, my, my first year, I got a dozen lynx, and, and they were all big, big lynx. And they were all mostly males, once again. There was no kittens. There was, they didn't even see tracks of kittens. And, you know, after, uh, Four years in that now, I my my lynx population is higher than ever because uh, you know the the females are having lots and lots of young. I saw a female last year with nine kittens, you know, um, and I I was sitting at I think eight, 17 or eighteen uh, lynx at the time, and I could have shot them. I could have shot and filled up my uh, up to twenty two if I wanted to, but kittens aren't worth what the what the what the uh, adults are worth, and and what the heck? I mean, leave them for the for another year, right? Yeah. So, you know, that was the other thing. I, w- I was not catching any end of the year, whether it was, whether it was my, uh, my Martin or my, you know, that seven Martin were all big, big, big Martin. And, and once again, mostly males. I'm not sure I understand that, the male to female ratio, because now I'm catching probably 30 to 40% female in, uh, in all of them. And, and yet the populations are, are higher and better, right? The only, only place where that's still an anomaly is my, my weasel, my short-tailed weasel. And they have just gone on a tear the last couple of years. I'm averaging, you know, 60, 70 weasel a, a season. Hmm. And just about every one of them is a male. Huh. I, wow. I, I don't know the explanation for that. I've asked. I've asked. I'll just snap. And they, they, they don't have any idea either. Well, just overall, that's a fascinating concept, uh, and I think it, it gets overlooked a lot, and it, it, maybe it's because it's counterintuitive. Like, well, you trap more animals, there's, it, you're going to have fewer animals you know, on, on the surface, but the, that whole idea that the trap line becomes more productive, as, or the, the habitat, the area becomes more productive as it's trapped and animals are harvested, when you really think about it, it makes a lot of sense. It is, and it, like you say, it is counterintuitive because everybody looks at you to begin with. And I mean, I deal with a lot of people who are non-believers, and a lot of people who are, you know, very anti-trapping. And and I, you know, I've got pretty good at judging whether it's worth worth my my breath or not. <laughs> and if I get get them to walk away with just a neutral, you know, like they're okay, it's maybe not bad. I'm not sure it's good, but it's maybe not bad. But I get that neutral, and I, I think I've had a victory. So I'm not sure. You know exactly how it works other than you know every year 
you know, depending on the species and that, only one to ten percent of the young of the year have to make it to the next year for that that species to carry on. Yeah. So, you know, when we're talking about walleye, you know, one percent, right? One percent of the eggs. Yeah. It, 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 I, in fisheries, I work with this all the time, and and you have a hard time. People have a hard time understanding. You know, uh, it it I equate it to when someone kills uh, a say kills a doe and some people say well you just killed two because you killed a uh, you know that doe would have had a fawn or two fawns the following year so you could have killed three deer by just killing that doe well it doesn't really work that way you know mother nature has set things up to where um, the the habitat is the constraining factor and and when you talk about fish you know fish can have between three four hundred to thousands of eggs and only two of those need to survive to adults to replace uh, and sustain the population. Yeah, absolutely true. And, and that was that was the, the you know the, the same situation here. We um, uh, it was would have been in the early '80s, and we were running like uh, 150,000 or, or 180,000 moose tags every year, and that was successful harvest. And so the the, the we were over harvesting uh, the moose, and it was wide open. Like I mean, there was. Uh, the uh, season would, would run from the 1st of September to the end of November, and there was a, a month-long cow and calf season in the middle. Like, I mean, we couldn't have, have targeted, <laughs> you know, that, done more for, for, for herding it. And we, you know, we were in a boom population at the time. So they went to draw. They went to draw, and it was pretty easy. Uh, you know, one of the things they did was they split it to, there was an early season, which was, you know, calling season, which was always fun, and then there was a late season, which was probably more successful. But anyway... They uh, they ended up driving the populations up, and they were so proud. This would have been in the early 90s. They were so proud because now we had 30% more moose than we'd ever have had on the landscape. And they said, you know, this was a success from, from their the, the biologists and their limited entry draws and, and, you know, managing for the future. And, and that year we had, that spring, we had the terrible moose tick population. I, I think Maine, you, you know what that is. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Ticks. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, we had, guess what? The moose ticks killed 30% of the population. So we were right back to the carrying capacity we had before. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, uh, and those could have been hunter killed and gone into freezers, if you think about it. Well, that's just it. And that's why I, where I was going with this 1% to 10% thing is that all we are dealing in is a surplus. You know, that's what we're looking for is, is to manage that surplus. Uh, I, I know that nothing ever gets wasted in, in the wild, but, you know, if we can put that fur to use, you know, that, 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 that's a, a big advantage. And it, it's not, you know, the, the, the carcass might go back out onto your, onto your wolf baits or whatever, you, you know, that kind of stuff. So the nature does get it. You're just taking the fur out of the equation and, and putting it to use. So th there's uh you know the conservation side of it is something that people don't see they all think that you know trappers are are these bloodthirsty uh uh criminals basically and and they're just looking out for uh, out for money and, and that's not the truth not the truth at all yeah you know i mean we we are conservationists and um especially here in canada we're we're signatory to ahedis i don't know if you're aware of that what ahedis is um You'll you'll have to uh, you'll have to <laughs> you'll have to explain it so I can. Uh, is that a humane standard? Yes. Okay. Yeah. It was in the uh, in the eighties they started trying to ban our fur out of Europe out of uh, Europe and the European Union, and so finally it got serious and we said okay, 
tell us what's humane. We, we're not going to stop trapping, but tell us what's humane. So they kind of laughed at us, and they set these standards while we met them. Uh, things like uh, a Fisher or Martin has to be uh, dead or beyond recovery in, uh, in two minutes, 120 seconds. You know, uh, a beaver has to be dead or beyond recovery in, in, uh, in five minutes, 300 seconds. Uh, that and that's the things like the you guys call them conibear, which is a brand, but uh, the body grip traps. And we uh, we have our, our signatory to that here. So it is the agreement of international humane trapping standards. And because we you know, signatory to it, uh, you know, allows our fur to go go to the earth and all that. And and by extension, you guys get to get to piggyback in on that too because you send. You know, so many of you send your fur to uh, to the auctions in Canada, or now it's just one auction. But but so your your fur gets included in now what we're doing, and that changed how we trap things. Yeah, uh, it changed a lot of how we trap things. Like no longer can Martin be uh, caught in a foothold. You know, uh, in you know, say or think what you want about me, but I don't want my animal hanging by its foot off a tree, waiting to freeze to death, or waiting for me to come along. I, I like that 120 second thing, you know, the two minutes. Um, when my time comes, I'll take the 120 seconds anytime. <laughs> you know, like it, it's uh, I I got no problem with with the traps that I have, and I got no problem with with packing extra traps because they're, they're frozen to it or whatever. And and uh, I, I like to be dead there. I like to, I I don't like you know the the, the thought of of them waiting for for me or death or whatever. So that's that's just me. I mean, I mean, I may be a, a little soft hearted. I mean, I've well, it certainly varies. But it, yeah, it depends on the person. You know, some some people have different uh, thoughts and ideas on what's humane than others do, for sure. Well, it's kind of the way you raised. When we were young and that, like, I mean, there was no such thing as, as humane. And I mean, we we weren't we didn't have the same trappy standards and that. It was all the way the way it was, right? And but that's the way we were raised. And it not to defend anybody, but I remember the first time that I under, uh, that, that I read about or heard anything about the Ku Klux Klan, and uh, you know I, I'm just I'm a, a voracious reader and investigator, and I, and I read into it, and I, I began to understand that this was they were born into it. It was their life. It wasn't something they came to later. It was that was that was how they're raised, and so I understood exactly how that could have that kind of grip on you, how you could have those beliefs, right? I'm not I'm not I'm not. Uh, defending them or anything else. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. It, 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 it's a it's a horrendous uh, idea, and no different than than any any of the you know the other terrible you know communists or Nazis or whatever that, that happened throughout history. But I understood how it happened, and you now I look back at it now and in my life and between hunting and trapping and that. I mean, I've, I've killed more animals than, than the Spanish flu, and. I, it, it has become more and more important as I've got older that everything was very, is very, very quick, you know? Um, you know, when you were younger, if you had a bad shot on an animal and you didn't get to finish it up for a few hours, it, it didn't bother you. It didn't keep you up at night, but it does now, you know? It does now for for, for whatever reason. I just, you know, I guess it's one of the stages you go through, right? Yeah, so, they, you get soft as you get old, don't you? Yeah, you do. Yeah, I, I get, and I blame grandkids for that. <laughs> <laughs> seven of the little germ bags and, and every time I, I go visit them they, they give me the latest disease and <laughs> uh, so so you, 
you have done a lot through the show um, in in promoting trapping and and uh, and trying to kind of uh, educate people more on trapping. It, we we went from the rich that started out trapping as a kid, and and now you've got this this big show that's popular throughout Canada and uh, and also quite popular here in the U.S. Uh, you must have had a, a time period in between where you. Uh, you figured out how to do all this filming stuff and and going around to different places. Uh, what what'd you do? What you you were in the hunting industry? Yeah, in in '99 we started the show called Outdoor Quest TV, and uh, I had a partner in it, and, the, and my partner had had a, a past history. He'd been producing a fishing show for a cable news network out of uh, Saskatoon in Saskatchewan or Regina. Or it might have been Regina. Anyway. Um, he had some history on how to make TV, so we got into it. And first, uh, I'm going to say the first four or five years were half fishing and half hunting. So every every show had a, a fishing component and a hunting component. And we liked it because, well, for one thing, fishing is so easy to make TV of. <laughs> <laughs> and fast, you know, yeah. like, I mean... Two weeks, you could, you could have you could have your, your thirteen episodes in the in the can. Hunting's a whole other story, you know. And we so we started like in, in '99, and, and we worked at it. And we seen we went through so many iterations as technology was changing. When we first started, you, we couldn't afford a camera, or couldn't afford a cameraman, or, or uh, uh, an edit suite. You know, back then, a, a used Betacam was seventy thousand dollars. Wow. Uh, the uh, Media 100, uh, which was basically a box, you know, and I remember the one that the, the that our um, editor used had 16 megabytes of RAM. You know, like wow, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it was an array. There was four drives. There was, or it was not RAM, pardon me, storage. 16 megabytes of storage, Jeez. and uh, you know, like, so we started by hiring a cameraman, and you know, because he had a camera. That's the only reason we we're hiring them. Because, and I don't know if you're aware of this, but most cameramen, uh, the qualified cameramen, are not outdoors people. And yeah. They're not the shape. <laughs> they're not the shape of an outdoors person. <laughs> I can remember we, were, we 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 flew this guy with us. Uh, we were hunting caribou in the north, and my wife was was lining up. There's this, you know, okay. In fairness, there's a thousand caribou out in front of us, but there's only one 400 inch bull. I said, She's going to shoot the big one. She's going to shoot that 400 inch. And he said, Which one's that? You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like he, he had no idea. He had no reference to what he was looking at. Yeah. And, and he, uh, he went out to make a whole bunch of, uh, of errors there. Like, you know, so I said, Well, you just keep keep a wide pan here because back then they didn't have a lot of zooms on those big data cameras and everything. He had a two power multiplier on it, so I think he probably had eight power zoom kind of thing. And, and uh, so I said, you just sit here and watch us. We're going to crawl down. And you're going to, you know, as long as you keep us in, in, in the uh, uh, frame and you keep us in the bottom of the frame and what so we're, the where we're looking at, you know, yeah, well, above us, you'll get our animal in the frame, right? So we go down there and we start crawling. And, and uh, we, we started at about 400 yards and we got to about 200. And we were just waiting for him to clear from some from cows and that. So there was no chance of a shoot through or anything in that. And all of a sudden, it was like a, a grenade went off and, and uh, these caribou just went everywhere, just running everywhere. I was like, what in God's name just happened, right? And I'm looking around and look back and here's Tim and he has set his tripod on top of the highest uh, bump <laughs> on the land. And, 
<laughs> and he's putting his camera up on top of it and looking at skylines, right? Yeah. And he just terrified everything. And like I was, I was the biggest caribou of the whole trip, and everything else was like, oh my god. Yeah, but that and you know, and the only he could never get up a uh, a mountain. I mean, he could roll down it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that was the, the, the condition he was. So these are the things that you dealt with in the early days. So we had a cameraman, and then we had another guy who was an editor. But basically, I had to stand beside the cameraman and tell him what to shoot, and I had to sit beside the editor and tell him, well. This is what I want to do here. And so then he'd put in transitions, that kind of stuff. So we, we got on-the-fly training that way, right? Yeah. And uh, you said earlier that I was trapper extraordinaire. I'm not trapper extraordinaire, I'm, uh, but I'm pretty good at making TV. I've, uh, I'm a very good generalized trapper. You know, I know a lot about, a different, uh, uh, about different animals, that, but I do know people who are specialists in certain animals, which, uh, which is uh, always interesting to run into. So... We did that for, hmm, I guess it would have been about, say, three years ago now, so in about 17, uh, my partner and I split the sheets on, on the, the Outdoor Quest, the hunting show, and, and we went exclusively into Trapping Inc. We, we're in our sixth season right now, so we've, we've been up for three years. And, and uh, when I started it, okay, this goes back to, you know, the whole motivation, right? Yes. And... Uh, we had a fella, uh, I don't know, Trapper Gord is, is a, a, a large uh, trap wholesaler, or retailer, pardon me, and lure retailer and all that here in, in Alberta, and, and pretty well-known throughout Canada, and lives across the river from me. And he, anyway, he, um, he put an ad up, he took out an ad with us on our, on our hunting show, and we kept getting feedback, like, when was the Trapper Gord show going to be on? When was the Trapper episode going to be on? All this kind of stuff, <laughs> and not not just us, but but the uh, the channel was getting the same feedback too, right? Okay. So, uh, so we you were discovered at, that there was a demand for that. Well, yeah. I mean, you kind of got the trappers. How do you explain this? Do you know, like when when it was not good to be gay and everybody hid in the closet, and that didn't really work, did it? You know, after they. After they stood up for themselves and started to have a parade and that, then, you know, things regulated and got to the normality we have today, right? Yeah. You know, they, they had a parade. And with trappers, we were still hiding in the closet. We weren't going to have a parade. And when we got to a, a certain point, uh, we were successful, uh, you know, one of the few in, in the uh, independent shows that are, were successful that we were, we were actually paying our own way. Uh, especially in Canada, uh, but the, you only you only have a certain amount of product you can sell. You have twelve commercials, right? Mm -hmm. And it's simple. If you're getting twenty thousand dollars a commercial, uh, that's two hundred forty thousand dollars, and then you got to take your expenses out. And you got to and you got to you know split it two ways. So it's not a lot of money, right? Uh, I tell people that all the time, and, and I, I'm, I'm sure they walk away and they say, "Well, he just threw that out so quickly." I don't believe it. It's not true. <laughs> no, it, it is true. <laughs> God honest truth. I mean, and I can tell you what: if if you're averaging twenty thousand dollars a commercial in Canada, you are at the top of the top. You know what I mean? Yeah. We we don't average that. You know that that, that that's as good, that's as good as you get. If anything was super lucrative, it's any business you look at from the outside, it looks really lucrative. But everybody would be doing it if it was if the money came that easy. Well, exactly. But there's so it's 
I think part of it is people look for something that they enjoy doing and then making a, a living out of it. And, and uh, you know, the, the TV makes trapping a lot, a lot harder. You know, it's a lot more work. You know, uh, there's there's the whole reality of, of living and traveling and trapping in our winters, which can kill you. Like, I mean, I'm I'm not trying to be over dramatic. I'm not trying to be light below zero or anything else. But you can die if you're stupid. Mm-hmm. You can die if you're just moderately dumb. You know, <laughs> and sometimes even when you're smart, you know, things can go wrong. The worst situation yeah. I ever got into. What's that? Bad luck. Yeah. Can kill you. The worst situation I ever. I ever got into I was trying to get uh, drive my snowmobile up onto a road and this was back a few years ago and I you, you got to go up slow but you got to go up fast enough so you don't get stuck before you hit the plow ridge like we have you know 10 feet of snow and where the the plow ridge is the plow ridge is hard but the, the snow in the ditch is soft so I'm going across this uh, and I'm kind of come up at an angle so I can look both ways so that I don't jump out in front of an oil field truck right mm-hmm. you know it, there's not that many vehicles, but I mean, it, it does happen. Well, just as I'm uh, as I'm looking over my shoulder back back in the one direction, the machine breaks through on the on the, the the ditch side or the downhill side, and it rolls over on me. Well, now I have a 680 pound machine on top of me, and I'm in six feet of snow. And I was laughing because it's kind of funny. I mean, I didn't get hurt or anything, but then I can't get it off of me. Yeah, I can't get it off of me. You know, like it's like oh crap. You know. So it took quite a bit of time to, to get out of there, and that's how easy I could have died at, at you know, doing two miles an hour. <laughs> you know, and so trapping adds. Uh, I mean, the, the the film, the TV, and that adds to all that work. It it, it adds a lot, you know, and you need an enormous amount of uh, of footage and all. But when we were maxed out, and we were looking for another show, then so we thought we we maybe had capacity to to uh, bring up another show and have you know. 12 more commercials to sell. So you're going to have Outdoor and Quest part- and the Trapping Show. Yes, yeah. Okay. We, but we hadn't decided at that point. My partner wanted to do a fishing show. Well, the fishing world is probably the worst uh, media to get into because there are so many people doing fishing shows. I mean, it's easy. You don't. You need very little for in the way of gear or anything else. And, and uh, you know, there's always interesting fishing everywhere. I mean, don't matter where you are, you've got fabulous fishing in Maine that you could do. Yep. A dozen shows on, right? Yep. And so what happens though is that there's also no sponsorship in it. You know, just about there are are like two, three major uh, motor manufacturers, and probably uh, you know less than half a dozen major boat manufacturers. You'd be amazed at how many different brands are made by the same manufacturer. Okay. So there's really no sponsorship there. You know, um, just about all of all of the the lures and and uh, line and rods and reels and all that are either owned by Normark or Berkeley. You know, that, that that kind of stuff. So, I know, you know, I was a professional fisherman on the PWT for for six years, and I was the most successful Canadian ever. And I was on a lot of, uh, well, not a lot, uh, half a dozen um, U- U.S. Uh, pro staff teams and, and stuff like that, right? Back in the day when you got paid money for doing that stuff, you weren't just a, a brand ambassador. <laughs> yeah. So I understood how, how how the game worked, and I, I didn't really want to get into fishing because I didn't think that there was that there was a, a business plan there that worked, a business model that you know we were going to be able to to, to uh, make money at or even break even. And we were getting all this feedback about you know when, when was Trapper Gordon show going to be on and all that kind of stuff. So 
at that same time, uh, Swamp People was really big. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know what? They're out there. They're gut-hooking gators. And they're shooting them <laughs> in the head. They make us look... And people bad, loved it. Right. <laughs> I know, but they made us look mainstream. Yeah. Know? And, well, no, listen, because, I mean, when you show the reality of trapping today, the reality of trapping in my world, um, it's conservation-minded, it's humane, it, it, it's none of the things that trapping was, you know? Um, so that was what really promoted me to start it, was the, the, the thought that, you know, I could lose money in a fishing show, I could lose money with a trapping show. Uh, but at least with a trapping show, I can spread some truth. And, and I probably, had I not been so passionate about the trapping, I'd probably, you know, if I just treated it as a business, I'd, I'd, I'd be more successful financially. But, you know, I wanted the truth to get out there and to show what was really, really going on. As trappers, we ran and hid for so long. We allowed pure falsehoods and lies to be uh, pushed out on the on the, the population. Every time, I mean, it's just it, it, you can see the reaction of somebody's face. You know, you say they say, well, what, "What's your TV show about?" And I say, "Trapping," and you can see immediately they think, "Oh my God, he's one of those people that skins animals alive." Yeah, you know. So that was the biggest falsehood ever fabricated in. in the history of man other than you know i'm from the government and i'm here to help and you know it, it was the biggest the biggest falsehood ever but if you're in the closet yeah, then no one can you can't deny it right exactly our our, our response was to hide deeper you know to, to, to stack the sweatshirts in front of us and, and that kind of stuff and the truth of it is and you know as a trapper the animals are dead when you get there or you kill them right away because that's you know that that is that is the only humane thing to do. How you could begin to skin a fox, a fish, or a wolverine, or a wolf alive? I have no idea. <laughs> Why would I do it? It would not be They're a not very wise decision. No, my God. No, just from personal safety. <laughs> like let's not be retarded. Those those little animals are, are vicious. I mean, that's that's their only response. Teeth and claws is, is their response to to, to life, right? So. They're not going to grow another hide, so you know they're going to be dead one way or the other, and and they, it only takes a few seconds to kill them. And the overwhelming factor is the reason that I caught that animal was for the fur, and the only value in that fur is how good I can put it up. I can't make it something that nature didn't already make it, but I can sure make it worth worth a lot less. So we allowed all of this BS to go on that animals were being skinned alive. Like I mean, it was ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And, and that was one of the major things that, that just one day I, was, I just had enough, you know? And, and I thought, you know, I, I have a lot of old, old, old friends. And a lot of them are now, have now passed on since, since I started the TV show or, or they can no longer trap and all that kind of stuff. And they're the kind-heartedest, most gentle person that you, people you, you've ever seen. Their understanding of animals and, and the wild is epic. And, you know, but they're very cut and dry. You know, it was like when you raise pigs for, for food, you, you know, you might name them or whatever, but you still eat RV and come, come Christmas time or whatever. They, they were very realistic people. They were very grounded people. And it, it kind of hurt me to see this stuff going on, like, you know, the way they were being attacked and the, and the lies that were being used. 
you know, here in the north, we have always had trapping uh, seasons, right? Yeah. Like, uh, kite starts the first of October, ends ends the the uh, end of uh, February. Um, further north, it, it ends the end of March. But uh, and the reason being is because that that allowed that that time for them to have their pups and, and for the pups to raise things. And yet, what do you see? You see Peta with with a, a, a supposed coyote caught in a trap saying, there she is just trying to get back to her den full of puppies because they're, they're starving <laughs> to death without her. Yeah. It's, it's an out, outright lie. Yeah. You know? And, and that was that was the part that, if my wife were here, I, I would say I kind of maybe sort of was looking for a fight and she'd roll her eyes loud enough for you to hear. Yeah, we, we, we should uh, acknowledge your wife, too, because she's a big part of the show and the podcast and, and everything that you do. I don't want to leave she her out of it. She absolutely is. She's, she's my humor. I'm, <laughs> I'm a lot funnier when she's around. <laughs> yeah, so for folks that, that haven't listened to the Scuttlebutt podcast, uh, check that out. There's a lot of episodes with Rich and Sandy just, uh, just kind of sitting down chatting, just talking trapping, talking about uh, the – the lifestyle on the trap line it's kind of neat yeah it, we prefer to call it a life not a lifestyle but uh she hasn't been on the last little while and it's mostly because she decided that you know she's i'm not gonna say how old she is but i'm 61 so <laughs> <laughs> she decided to change careers she had been a okay a vp yeah. in, in in the major bank in canada and uh our five major banks are are national uh they're all, all right across canada but she'd been a vp in that and she was uh, managing like $1.4 billion, if you can imagine that, in up in northern Alberta. But she had most of northern Alberta and some in northern BC and all that. And then she decided she'd had enough, because right? it was basically all the people she had under her. It was a continual struggle to be, you know, finding people and hiring people and all that. So she quit that, and she's now uh, become a wealth manager. And so she's done about four years' worth of university in the last, 11 months. Wow. So she hasn't been a, a, a happy Sunday person to talk to. <laughs> <laughs> uh, although I'm getting her out to the trap line this weekend. <laughs> uh, yeah. But yes, she, she was my first successful conversion. And I know in today's world where conversion therapy is a bad word and all that, <laughs> this is a different kind of conversion. <laughs> conversion to a trapper. Yeah, well, she never hunted fish or did anything. Oh, no kidding. Doing that. No, and we've uh, we'll be celebrating our 41st anniversary here uh, in, a, in a couple months, hmm. and it was just you know, but she was open to it, and we I didn't push anything at her, but if she's you know, she quickly realized that if she's going to be really involved in my life, uh, that she was going to to come along, and, and and it just worked for her. You know, we started out. I told the story the other day about how her very first Christmas present together. I gave her this really sweet 270 Winchester with a scope on it and all that. <laughs> I, I wanted a really sweet 270, you know? <laughs> yeah. She turned it about on me, became an excellent shot, and now we've hunted the world. We've yeah. hunted the world uh, together, and, and uh, yeah, she's a big, big part of my life. The, the interesting thing, whether it's hunting or fishing or trapping, is that if dad does it, maybe the kids do. But if mom does it, the whole family does. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That makes mom, sense. I got, I got to tell you guys, we're really unimportant in the in the history of man, but <laughs> <laughs> the ladies are the important ones. <laughs> so, so you took 
you you took a big leap in starting the show. Yes. Yes. And our biggest success was uh, Argo had been a longtime sponsor of the hunting show, and which is naturally their demographic. And uh, I convinced them to come with me, and it has worked astronomically. Uh, we are are their top uh, promoter. We are the, the, like they can point to so many sales and, and references and, and that kind of stuff. And we have some Argo stuff uh, reviews and that that I've done on YouTube and that's their, their all time record stuff. And yeah. but it just, it, it, the whole thing of it is, is, you know, people say, what a great gig you've gotten. And I say to them, you don't understand. I'm just living my life. I'm not pretending. I'm not doing anything special. I'm just living my life. So yeah, it is a damn good gig, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and things like like the Argo, the stuff that works, we can we can promote all day long. I've had a lot of offers from stuff that was marginal, um, whether it was in quality or in usefulness, you know. And I just can't do that because I don't have time. Yeah, I don't have time to. Uh, to promote something or, or to even get, you know, video with or whatever. Uh, I had a clothing company and, you know, they make you know, what they call a rugged wear clothing and that is for Southern U.S. And I said, you don't understand. This happens every day, all day long. Like I, I leave, you know, by the time we, I get the, the big line open with, you know, for links and, and otter and all that kind of stuff. Well, now I'll do a hundred miles in a day on a snowmobile. And you need clothing that, that, that keeps you warm and dry. And, and dry is really important because as soon as you get wet, whether it's through sweating or if it's snowing and, and you know, you, you get wet from the seat or whatever, uh, you're in trouble, you know? Mm-hmm. You're, you're in trouble. So, you know, they, they, it was a lucrative deal that they offered, but they said, well, you could just, you know, wear it around the cabin or you could, <laughs> you could you know, pretend to be taking stuff out. And I said, you know what? I said, you're interested in me and my company because we don't pretend because we put real in reality tv we don't catch 400 dollars beaver or anything else you know we we, we tell the truth and I, I said now because i have credibility and you know relatability with with the the, the folks that, that watch us I, and you want me then to you know besmirch that by, by pretending i i don't do that no it's not you good know? for you and, and it's I, not good for them and it's kind of a slippery slope. Like, I mean, I, I like to get up every morning and, and uh, you know, look at myself when I shave. You know, it's, I just, that kind of stuff bothers me because I see that, you know, years of, in TV, I've seen just about every atrocity and, and fake set up. And, you know, like, there is so much that is, is reenacted on, on hunting shows and that kind of stuff. And that's the beauty about, uh, about trapping. It's real. You're right there all the time, right over the show. You know, like, I mean, there's there's no reenacting. If we don't get it right, we don't get it right, you know. Uh, there's, you know, It is a, a hectic pace that you keep up. We're on the trap line every four days, every four days. And it's, a, it's about three hours from, from our house to our the door of our cabin. And uh, so we're there every four days. It takes me three, di- three days to run my line, more if I have to, have to re- refresh wolf baits and that kind of stuff. Because then you got to go get the bait and, and all that kind of stuff, and, and that basically that's traveling around and, and finding roadkill and, and getting approved by the government to, to pick it up and take it. And the, there's a lot of work involved. There's yeah. a lot of work involved in, in trapping, and and probably I wouldn't be quite so universal 
like I wouldn't tackle every fur bear that I've got because some of them just physically aren't worth tackling. Right, right. But for like, the show, it's, you know, it's nice to be able to show people those different species. Exactly, exactly. To show the different species and, and to, you know, you learn neat stuff. Like, I mean, I'm learning stuff all the time. We have a, an episode that's running this year. And uh, it, it started in Canada on the on the uh, first of April, and we will be on pursuit this year. Uh, we'll be Q three or pardon me, Q four of twenty twenty and Q one of twenty twenty one on pursuit channel. So watch for us. We're all, we'll be on three times a week. But one of the shows is is on beaver, and and uh, I get to show a, a house that I actually trapped uh, two seasons before, and then something happened. Usually with, with beaver, what happens is they run out of uh, accessible food. And they leave. So that, yeah. that's the reason why they they build the dam is to flood water so they can swim up to the food. And after a while, they run out of food they can swim them up to. And so then they'll abandon it. And everybody thinks that they died or whatever. No, they just moved down down Creek or wherever is, is all they've done. A lot of a lot of when they're in the pothole lakes and that, there'll be two or three beaver houses on the lake, but only one of them will be active. Yes. And yep. that'll be the one where they can get food closest to. And then after being there for a year or two, They'll move over to one of the other ones, you know. Cause the willows grow pretty fast, and willows is one of their big foods around here. And so, anyway, there was this big house that I had taken. Uh, I think I took nine. Ended up taking nine beaver out of or something like that. And I had three different sets on it, and the one set produced every time. The other one produced maybe three quarters of the time. The others produced a third of the time. And I got to look at all of these openings. Well, I thought I had that that beaver house covered you know had three sets going on all the time and i was i was targeting right into the lodge like i was using uh tall stands that, and yeah. setting the uh, body grips right against the entrance of the lodge i don't know if you've ever seen but i use this flexible pipe to find the entrance to the to the lodge okay and so you get to set right tight up against the lodge they can't get in or out without without uh hitting you unless the hole is a lot bigger than than you know your, your trap and that's what i discovered this beaver house actually has six entries. <laughs> and, and on the one side, the, the side that was that was hitting all the time, was I'd actually hit the center ent entrance in, in, a, in a space of, of 20 feet, you know, like in a half arc circumference around this beaver house. There were three of these entrances, and I'd hit the center one, and it wasn't even the biggest one. You know, the biggest one was, was the one uh, further to the left as you're, as you're facing the, the beaver house. So it was fascinating to look at all this, and I learned some interesting things. Not very often do you get to see them right after the water leaves like that, yeah. and especially a very high, highly active house like that. And one of the things that struck me instantly as, as, as so interesting was the fact that there is no mud in between those sticks underwater. Hmm. Yeah. And what is yeah. going on is their, their own current that they create as they as they swim in and out washes the mud out from in between have you ever sat on a on a beaver house and you've you, you've uh, you're using a stand and you push down and, and it's like it's springy right yeah it's springy well what happens is, is you're you're actually too close to the house you need to step out a little bit and then you'll go down past that that is the the uh the lacing of willows and, and that that they built the house out of that uh, was covered with mud until the water came up, and now it's washed. It's washed open, and it's like, it's like a, a you know, a sunshade or an awning or whatever over top of their opening. And I got to see all of this, you know, like firsthand. Like yeah. the water had just gone. Not even weeds had grown up or anything, right? So the water had just gone, and it was so interesting to see. 
I was, you know, it only makes sense once you look at it, you know, the light comes on. It's like, you know, <laughs> some of these experts that I talk about, I talk to about, you know, about different stuff. And one of them, uh, the one wolf guy, you know, as soon as he says it, it's like instantly, yes, I understand it. But I would have never got there on my own. Yeah. I just would don't have that, that communication with the animal that, that, they, that he had. And it was the same thing with, with this, this beaver thing. When I looked at it, it was instantly, yes. I understood why I was having trouble. You know, you'd go down your hole with, with the pipe and you, you could find the hole. Yeah. And yet when you try to shove the stand down, the stand is now you know, 12 inches wide or 10 inches wide or whatever, and it would be hitting this, this springy stuff, right? And you'd move it a little bit left. It wasn't just one. There was a bunch of them. And I, I couldn't understand what was going on. Well, now I understand. I get so visible. And it, it, it's fascinating. You're always learning. Yes. I think if you ever wanted to become the best hunter out there, you should become a really good trapper first. You understand animals so much better because whether you're hunting or fishing, bow hunting, fly fishing, whatever, you have the advantage of distance. You know, you, you have for the 30 yards or, or 300 yards, you have that advantage of distance. You don't have to get so close. But for trapping, I have to have that coyote or wolf or lynx put their foot on that two-inch circle where I want it, or I have to have them convince them to shove their head through that snare, uh, you know, or, or up to a body grip, you know, that, that, that kind of stuff. You have to have a conversation with the animal and it, it, it's um it's something that i'm understanding that i don't do well is is explain that kind of stuff because i as i have more people come with me they say what are you doing there oh yeah you don't even think about it a lot of times yeah exactly you, <laughs> if you ever watch any of my uh especially the fisher martin stuff because we're always dealing with body grapes and they're either 120 or 160 Belial's and, and I, I put them up in boxes and, and there's reasons that they go in boxes uh, it's for it's for speed it's for the, I can't I won't catch birds that kind of stuff right like birds are a big deal around here so anyway uh, you know of course you got this, those two two springs uh, and they have safeties on them right and a lot of people make a big deal about taking those springs off before they, they put it up in the box and and uh, I just I can just pinch the the uh, the body grip right in there by using the springs against the sides of the plywood of the uh, plywood box, right? Mm -hmm. But I I can't tell you how many emails I get every every time a, a Fisher or a Martin show airs or says, "Oh, I see you forgot to take the safeties off on that." Ha ha ha! You know, I, my hands do it without me even thinking about it, and you know, I, and I and I don't even realize I have done it anymore. Yeah. That's that's the kind of thing I I, I need I need somebody around who who eyes can look at it differently than me and, and show me what it is that I'm doing that, that, that is, is unique because I, I just don't see it anymore. I mean, we, it's something we've always done, right? <laughs> yeah, that's what, what uh, instructors are good at. Um, uh, some of the best instructors can think uh, through the eyes of, of a person that, that hasn't done it before. Yeah, yeah. And for us, so much of it is, is muscle memory because you're doing, you know, yeah. You have a huge, I mean, any given day, I'll check 150 Martin and, and Fisher trout, you know. And so if it's if it's bait day, where you know that's once a, a month, um, up here our bait, our meat will actually freeze dry. Yep. And you know that it's it, that it's froze froze dry when um, when the the pygmy shrews move into your box because they will eat it then because it's like like a wood to them or something, right? And it is cool. You, you'd appreciate this as a biologist, but they can take a muskrat carcass and turn it into something you could put in the, the Smithsonian. They will, they will clean it that good. <laughs> it's, 
You don't eat any any of the bones, not even the fine ribs on, uh, not even those fine rib bones, but they eat all the meat. Huh. And so, at that point, once it's freeze dried like that, it's lost a lot of its scent and it's lost uh, uh, a lot of attraction. Plus, you know, you they maybe ate most of it. So, so you go once a month, you get, and that's over three months. You've got to go out and you've got to every one of those boxes. You have to drop the trap out of. You have to pull the screen out. You have to put get the meat out and put fresh meat in. You know, every two weeks you put fresh lure up. And so, you know, on and off of that, uh, the, the machine, whether it's the Argo or the snowmobile or whatever, you, know, you make a lot of miles in a day. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's a lot of work involved. And, and so many of the trails that, that uh, I have, you know, like I like to keep my uh, my sets right next to, uh, we have what, I don't know if you have them on the main or not, they're called seismic lines. What it is, it's from oil exploration. So no, used we don't to have be that. that were, okay, well, it used to be they, they were a grid. And they were they were straight, they were probably you know three four meters wide and 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 they would just knock down all the trees and everything and they would go through and they would lay down a three D seismic uh, uh, charge and and they they get a read back on what formations were below all that kind of stuff right so we have all these seismic trails through the bush and uh, I like to have my my sets as close as I can to the to the edge so that you can just about stand on uh, in your machine and do it but. But there's an advantage to taking a few steps off because uh, even if I park the, the machine on the far side of the trail, I have to walk across the trail over, you know, through that snow, I create this trail. Mm-hmm. And lynx, lynx follow my trails. Mm-hmm. And especially because they can smell the beaver meat or the lure or whatever's going on, you know, over on that set. And he'll walk in and he'll, he'll walk right in my trail. Lynx tacker are lazy. So they'll, they will follow whatever is packed. And... So most of most of those trails all have blind snares on it for, for lakes. So you gotta you know move the blind snare out of your way, and, and then on the way back out you gotta reset it. And you know, it's, it's a really dizzy thing, and, and and it seems like you know no big deal. Oh, you smear a little bit of lure on it, where you go. Well, a little bit longer than that. Yeah. <laughs> so every four days you're out there to do that, and it takes you three days to cover everything. You know, and and uh, then you they, they, then you you know on the night of the thir- third night you're back. You head back home, and then four days later, you start it all over again. <laughs> so, so you've done a lot covering like your trap line, but you've also gone and visited other trappers throughout Canada, right? W- was That's that kind absolutely of absolutely fascinating? Yeah, I'm wondering if was that uh, the initial plan, or were those people you knew, you happened to know, or did you kind of uh, kind of work your way into that? Um. I'll tell you this up front. It's been less successful than it appears on the show. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I traveled up in the, it's, there, there's a giggle, uh, it's a joke, but in the territories and the Yukon and that, and that every town is Fort something, right? Every yeah. every wide spot in the road is Fort something. And I think three winters ago, I was in every fort in both the Northwest Territories and uh, of the western part of the Northwest Territories, and in the Yukon, and I, I brought back one show. Oh, really? Like, oh, so many people only remember their best days. It's like talking to people fishing, right? Yeah. You you understand this? Yeah. You know, how many fish did you catch? Oh, it was only this way. It's, nev- it's never what it used to be, too. No, and <laughs> and you know, as a as a fish bi- fish biologist, you've done creel surveys and that kind of stuff. Yeah. They're quite different than the stories that you hear, right? Exactly. Natural. Yeah, so the, those anecdotal uh, evidence that is, you take it with a very large lump of salt, but but 
so I don't know a lot of these people. You know, I've, I've met them either through the show or somebody else has contacted me, and, and we've got more and more leery about it. And it costs a lot to do this, right? Absolutely. Like, I'm amazed that you're able to do so much traveling. Well, I, we're, we're self-funded, and, and some of it's worth doing. Like, I really like to see the old folks. Well, a lot of the old people are, are getting too old. You know, they don't mm-hmm. do them too much anymore. Yeah, but I've I've uh, I've done a lot of traveling, and I'd like to travel more. But you know, my range in a vehicle is you know Alberta, Saskatchewan, some of BC, that kind of stuff. Uh, when I drove like to Nuvik, I did a show up there. Uh, drove actually, I drove all the way to Aklavik, which you, you go from Nuvik, it's two and a half hours on on the ice roads on the Mackenzie River Delta, which is a whole another another circus. But just to get to Nuvik. That's 3,000 kilometers, uh, 2,936 kilometers wow. from my door to Inuvik, to the hotel I stayed one night in Inuvik. You know, like, that is a long time. And then I got out there, and, uh, you know, we got caught, uh, and the big storm blew in, and I spent three days renting a, a place to sleep on the on the floor of the church in, in Fort McPherson because there are no hotels there, but the, the Dempster Highway was closed. You know, and the the wind was blowing, and like the wind when the wind blows there, when they have, I don't know, you guys probably don't get chinooks there, but we in don't. the winter time we get chinook. Yeah, we get chinook, and it's a it's a warm wind, and yep. it's got to do with the the airflow coming over the mountains and how it compresses and and drags down warm weather and all. Of, uh, anyway, but usually a big thaw is, comes with it. Well, so when we have a chinook here, it'll get get above above freezing and start thawing. Up there, when it gets to uh, would be uh, like zero Fahrenheit or, or you know, minus 20 uh, Celsius is, is when they're getting their Chinooks and that starts blowing. And thank God they have very little snow up there. You know, it's, they, they, they just don't have a lot of snow over there. It's, it's almost like a desert. It's as dry, as, yeah. Uh, yeah, in the, in the wintertime because it blows in that road like un- nonstop. So I sat at Fort McPherson, you know, for three days and literally, you know, cost 25 bucks to rent a place to unroll my my uh, <laughs> sleeping bag every night in the in the local church and, and I mean God bless them it was that or trying to sleep in my vehicle and, and you know in that weather right did you get a show out of it but I did I did but you know I, I, I drove all the way up there and he had checked his traps the night before <laughs> you know so we ended up we ended up getting one link yeah you know and, and he didn't have a lot of a lot of traps out. Yeah. You know, it's uh, there, and he, the town of McClavick is, uh, I forget how many hours it is, in the wintertime by boat, it's, or in the summertime by boat, it's 14 hours or something by boat to get there. You can get it two and a half, three hours on the, the ice roads in the wintertime. And it's a town of 600, and he was the only trapper in the town. Yep. And I said, I said to him, I said, why do you live here? And he said, it's because it's our land. This is where we live. But I said, you're the only one that lives off the land. Everybody else is down there <laughs> buying, buying a bottle of pop at $12 a bottle. You know, like, well, I don't understand. It was the same way when you I know? was in Alaska. It was, it was amazing how many people in, in the villages don't trap. Yeah. Almost nobody Yeah. Trapped. Well, and that was the weird part because I'm up there traveling around. And I had several different organizations like uh, um, indigenous organizations come to me and say, we want to hire you to teach trapping to our people again. 
And I said, I don't understand. Uh, I'm an old white guy. What, what do I have to teach? And they said, well, we have lost you know, several generations and nobody has the knowledge anymore. And, uh, you know, they, they claim that they lost it through the residential schools, which were a, a crime against humanity. You know, took took them the, took them out of the bush and and into uh, into town. Is that what you mean by that? In, into Catholic schools, uh, the Catholic Church bears the biggest burden on this, uh, as far as I'm concerned. And yet they all attacked the the uh, Canadian government. Uh, but yeah, they they went on for for a long time. It was it was it's horrific, and and it's a terrible terrible thing. I think though that it's kind of a combination of things that created a perfect storm. Yeah. I think not only was there the, the residential schools, but I think there was progress, you know, the, the encroaching of civilization and, and they ran into all of the, the sins and pleasures or whatever of, you know, Ease. modern civilization. Yeah. That they never, they weren't exposed to before. Mm-hmm. And one of the big things that, that goes on is they all talk about how they want to live their, their life. Well, back then their life, you know what their job was? survival that's what they did every day of every year was survival and so they had a beaver camp here in the spring and then in the summertime was a fish camp and, and then there was there was moose camp and then there was then there was trapping camp and you know and when, and they, they just kept moving and moving and moving but every day was you know a foot race to stay alive and they have all those rights still today they can still do all of that stuff but they prefer and like many of them have said the same said this to me well no we like to be in you know have a heated house and, and running water and and you know 300 cable tv channels right yeah they think you're and crazy just, for yeah. going out in the bush well <laughs> i have i have taught a lot of people about trapping but they, the first thing there's just two things one that's a lot of work and two boy sometimes it doesn't pay very well no sometimes it doesn't <laughs> you know every every now and then you know you have that the 2012, 2013, 2014 for the yeah. Martins, you know, where, yeah. where, you know, they were running hundreds of dollars each, you know, like I had, you know, in the two, you know, $200 for, for Martin, and, uh, you know, which God bless them. Martin are, are, are like skinning a squirrel and fleshing a squirrel only easier because they're a little bigger. You know what I mean? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there, there is nothing so simple as a Martin and for to get $200 for, you know, I mean, if you're getting fifty, sixty dollars for Martin today, it's still good money because there's not a lot of work involved, right? Yeah. You know, as compared to getting fifty dollars for a double XL beaver, like, wow, that's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, this and we, of course, out here, the Western beaver is is a reddish brown, so it's not as valuable as your black beaver back there. Yeah. And and that's funny because actually, fur harvest is now being the only auction is changing that because they're they all get lumped into whatever size they are. They're not dividing them into Western and Eastern anymore because everything's getting dyed, right? Okay. Everything is, is, is getting dyed and, and it makes no difference. Cause most, most of it is plucking, shearing or, or going to uh, making hats. So you're doing better uh, on your beaver now then? We are, but where we're doing best is, is uh, the uh, caster. Yeah. Cause yeah. you take uh, Western, Western Canadian select is $110 a pound US. Wow. Yeah, yeah, and only only that is a particular color. When you open the caster, they can tell whether it's from the west or from the east. No it, it's got nothing to do with. Yeah, it, it, it is a it is a particular type of caster. 
Like the best you'll get out of, um, you'll get about $90 a pound, which is still really that's, good money. That's what yeah. I got. Yeah, that's what I got at the last auction. Yeah. yeah, and that'll be for your best your best caster, your top caster in that. But uh, we, we got, there's two, there's, sorry about that, there's two grades above that out here. Huh. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's interesting. But same thing, I mean, we get, I do all my beaver in the wintertime because I, for one thing, it, it's, uh, if I'm going to do them, I, I need to save so many, so much for bait, and uh, and uh, that's one of the focuses. Like I probably use 10, 10 of those forty-pound two-year-olds for for bait every year, and I also, you know, I want if I'm going to kill them for for bait, I want it to be to be worth something. So I, I take and uh, you know that's when you get your most ca- most casters are in the wintertime because they're not using them. And uh, the the second thing that's when that that hide is the fullest and that and they they grade them when it comes to uh, like the felters are are the big people that are buying right now and they grade them by weight you know yeah. how much how much they're weighing per per hide so of course the winter beaver brings you a lot more more because it's a lot thicker a lot a lot heavier right do you have a, a long haired beaver there that's uh, shearable oh yeah 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 our that's that is our two markets felting and shearing yeah. And the, the, the shearers are, are in the wintertime. I did uh, uh, an episode where we, uh, we took 20 of our, our beavers. We had them uh, tanned and, and plucked and sheared, and then we had them made into a blanket. Awesome. Well, it is like uh, crushed velvet, but half-inch thick, you know? And this <laughs> is just this king-size uh, bed. Oh, we have a lot of fun with it. We actually opened one show this year with, with us laying in bed under this blanket. <laughs> <laughs> We're fully closed and everything, but my wife said, this is kind of weird, you know? <laughs> uh, I said, yeah. you've been married to me for 40 years, and you're just figuring this out now? <laughs> <laughs> now, now the, uh, going back to the show, the, the thing has been incredibly successful. Like, I think, were you, were you a surprise that, I, I, I'm kind of surprised that a trapping show became so, you're, you, were you like the number one outdoor show in Canada? Oh, by multiples, by multiples. We are, we are, um, if you took the channel average, we're Nelson rated on Wild TV. If you took the channel average, our show is, has 10 times the numbers of the channel average. Okay. Wow. And of the next show closest to us, we are more popular by three times. You know, like, and those, those are huge numbers. We did 3.24 million viewers last year. That is incredible. Um, in you, Canada, that is that is like being on on the major mainstream. <laughs> most major network. cable TV networks can't get get that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So so well, obviously it, like, it struck a chord with people that that are not in the trapping community. Well, and, and it's funny you mentioned that because that was the next words out of my mouth. Is that I bet you eighty to eighty five percent of our of our uh, viewers are not trappers. Yeah, I'm sure. We have a hundred percent of the trappers out there that have connection to, to TV or to the internet or whatever. But um, I'm sure that that you know I know I know I mean it's I could send you emails that I get one after another after another. I'm not a trapper, but you know this is so interesting. People uh, love the, the like the back to uh, you know the, the primitive survival you know living in the in the woods. I mean we don't pull any punches. We run a generator. You know we're we're not. Yeah, you're not right. pretending like you're, this is something. You're no, doing. no, 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 no. 
because once again, just doing it and doing it for the whole, the full pull, you know, from the 1st of October till um, we have uh, beaver and otter and muskrat run to May 15th, but you, they're, they're damaging one another too bad in the breeding season before that. So on average, probably the end of April is when it all ends. You do that for the full pull, you know, um, that's a lot of work. I mean, yeah. good God, it's, it's good that you don't have to try to do anything by candlelight. You know what I mean? <laughs> we we interviewed an old guy. This is something. Here, here's here's this came such a shock to me. Okay, we interviewed an old fella, and he went to the bush at 14. He went to the left left home, uh, abusive family relationship, all that kind of stuff. And, and at 14, he's now, I think he's probably close to 80. So that's a long time ago. And he went to the bush, and he lived in a lean-to and went traffic. Okay, a lean-to. Wow. This is in northern Alberta. And I figure I'm tougher than the average bear, but I ain't that tough. No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and he's a kid. He's 14. Okay. And he's in a lean-to. So, you know, uh, Sandy's doing, uh, and I are doing the interview with him. And I, and I said, so what's the toughest part about living in a lean-to? And I'm thinking about, you know, staying warm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He says, hey, getting your fur to dry evenly. <laughs> was it, was it, yeah. Honest to God. So... <laughs> He did that for, for his first winter, and, and he uh, then drug all of his fur out to the road. And I forget how many miles he was back in the bush. But it took days, so he was maybe 30, 40 miles back in the bush. And he come out on snowshoes, dragging everything with a, on a crab wall, right? Yeah. And uh, he flagged down the Greyhound bus. I was back in the days when we had the Greyhound bus. <laughs> and he flagged down the Greyhound bus along the highway, which, which you could do. You could you could flagged down a, a, a train as well and he flagged it down and they took him to Edmonton and he uh, sold his fur and all that his check for that winter was like $1,600 he had all of the money in the world right yeah. this is I don't know back in the 50s you know somewhere in there 50s maybe somewhere there. and so then he bought a tent he bought an army surplus tent and he bought a, a, a wood heater you know like a, an old airtight wood heater and he went back to the bush. He did that for two, three winters. And then his uh, brother-in-law kind of tricked him into taking a snowmobile. His brother-in-law, uh, his wife had married very well, uh, or his sister had married very well. And, and uh, she talked about about the you know all the work that Alan was going through and all that. And so he kind of come up and visited and, with a couple of snowmobiles. And he left one snowmobile there. And so then Alan started to use it. And my wife said to him, you know, like, this is how we think, how modern people think. And this was such a surprise to me. And this is the kind of intuitive leaps that when it comes to fur and that that I never come to. But my wife says to him, so you could, your trap line could be much bigger. You know, you could, you could cover much more ground. Was that the biggest benefit of the snowboat? And he looked at her and he says, no, he says, I didn't have to pack those, all those animals back over my back to thaw them, to skin them. And that just hit me like a ton of bricks. Yeah. <laughs> you can imagine. You go, you go, and you've got four wolves sitting there. Now that's all going to come back on your back on snowshoes to be thawed before you can, you can even skin them. Yeah. Like the 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 incredible leap forward that the snowmobile was, or you know, an ATV was, was just it was mind boggling. Mm -hmm. Isn't that funny? You don't you don't think of that stuff, do you, Jeremiah? No, absolutely not. No, and I mean, even when you're beaver yeah. trapping, you can at least skin if you have to without carrying it out. But you got a big frozen animal. I mean, that, yeah, that that was a, had to be an incredibly limiting factor. Well, yeah, it was all on his back. 
You know, you think about that. My grandpa, my grandpa went to the, um, uh, was out on the, his chaplain was out on the Lassenel River, and uh, he lived in Grovedale, so it was probably in the neighborhood of 75 or 80 miles. And he went out in the fall. This is like long before I was born or whatever, but he went out in the fall on snowshoes. He came out at Christmas time and he came out uh, in springtime. But he did it all packing on his back. He'd come out with his bundle of fur and twice, twice a year, but that far on snowshoes. You know, like it's, it's just mind boggling how tough these people were. He used to tell me stories and this, this is the kind of impact that, you know, how I ended up the way I am. <laughs> yeah. But, kind of impact he would he would the wolves would be howling and so he'd, he'd take a moonlight night and he would l- lie up on a on a ridge in the snow on the lacknell river and he'd howl at them and he rubbed the red phosphorus off of a match on the front side of his uh of his uh he had a 25 35 with the old octagon barrel such a yeah. cool rifle anyway he had that and they, they, they'd come down the river sometimes and he'd, he'd shoot them in the moonlight like it's just a, it's like Oh my God! It, 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 today that gives me chills thinking about Grandpa telling me that. You know, Grandpa was was pretty sick when he was telling me that, and I was four for God's sake. Yeah, I remember that. Hard to remember that stuff. Oh my God! It made such an impression. Uh, back when men were men, right? Such a wussy today. <laughs> <laughs> Which would you rather have? One what? Uh, w- would you rather be trapping back in the 30s and 40s or doing it today? Uh, That's a tough one, huh? I think it is a tough one because there was everything was so new back then, but they weren't, you know, there was nothing that was considered humane back then. Um, things were pretty rudimentary. Like, you should have seen the original Martin Sapp. Have you ever researched that? Uh, I, I've heard of some pretty nasty ways people used to catch Martin. The most nastiest, and I've found them on trees around here. They would chisel a hole that was two inches square. I know, yeah. Chisel it back yeah. in about yeah, it chisel it back in about four inches into the tree. They put their bait back there. Then, then from the bottom on an angle up, they would drive a sharpened spike, yeah. so that it covered about three quarters of the opening. And the, and the Martin would shove his head back in there to try and get the meat. And he'd shove it up over top of that, that spike. Well, then when he tried to pull back, it would penetrate up underneath his jaw, and he would hang there until he died. Yeah. And that was that was normal. They didn't think they were being cruel. Right. You know, as as we become more and more civilized, we, we set ourselves further and further apart from the animals, right? And back in the day, you know, we were closer to a wolf. Like, I mean, everybody says, oh, a wolf hamstrings an animal, then they cut its throat and all that. They don't. They, they hang off its butt until they can't run anymore. Then one grabs it by the nose until it's exhausted and then it falls over. The minute that moose quits trying to fight, they start eating it. Yeah. And it might live for a day and a half with wolves eating on it. The, the, wolf, the wolves kill by blood loss. That's, it's that simple. And that's blood loss from them eating. So, but to try and put our morality or ethics or whatever on an animal is stupid. And it's not realistic. And, and it's the basis of, of all of Disney and, and, and all the grief that's come with that. But as we get more and more civilized, we, we understand, you know, better our, the, the, the way to deal with this stuff. And uh, I, I guess if I lived back in those times, I'd have been happy as could be. 
Yeah. You know, uh, but no, knowing what I know now, I, you were known again. Yeah. yeah it, but exactly. That's that's what I where I was trying to get before when I was talking about the Ku Klux Klan and all of that. We didn't. They didn't know any different, and, we, and those folks back then didn't know any different. You know. Like my, my grandpa nearly drowned one year coming out because he had to cross the Smoky River, which is a very large river. He had to cross it on the ice, so he had to balance between how long he trapped because it was, you know, the seasons went much longer than what he could than what he could stay out there. But he had to balance, you know, how long he could trap and, and still get across that river before the ice went. And one year, you know, he didn't uh, didn't time it right and uh, went through the ice and. Just about died. He, he was lucky. He had a big pack of fur on his back that caught on the ice. You know, wow. think about stuff like that, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, people, and people certainly died that way. I mean, people that disappeared oh. and were never found. I uh, I get to have one or two unscheduled showers or baths a year, thanks to otter trapping. Just about all of our otter trapping takes place in the wintertime when everything's frozen. And otters travel immense distances in the snow, and mm -hmm. and they're a really cool animal. And, and most people always think of them frolicking in the water and that. And I don't think that's not how I picture otter. I picture them in the snow, and 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 it's cool how adapted they are to it. But if you ever want to go swimming, just get a hold of an otter track and start following it, because <laughs> they know. I don't know whether it's by scent or by by. Uh, by sound or whatever, they know every weak spot on the ice, and they go to the places where you would, where you think you're safe walking. Like lots of times when you're going around the edge of a pond or a creek or whatever, you walk on the cattails, right? Mm -hmm. Because you know that the cattails are attached to the bottom. Uh, you know that's how a cattail lives, and and that that that's safe. You're not going to fall through there. You, you know, step outside the cattails, you might. But otter will go right into those cattails and they'll have a hole in there, and away they go in and out, in and out, in and out. You know, and you can fall through there. One time it was. It was a pretty damn cold day. We were we were probably in like minus thirty Celsius, so that's that's twenty some below Fahrenheit. And I was making a long run, and I had an otter set. I found a, a an um, otter access hole, and you got to hit them when they're fresh because they only they don't spend very long at every every body of water. Then they move on. You know they're not trapped there, and and yeah. uh, you know it's just nature's way of of them moving on to not overutilize a, an area or whatever. So when you find one, then you have to set it right away. And our, our season only opens on December 1 for otters. So, I mean, everything's frozen at that point. Uh, I set this, and the easiest way is you set a, uh, a set 280 or, or 330 body grip over top of that access hole. And when they either go in or go, come out, you, you catch yourself an otter. And, but it's got to be right away. So I had said it the day before, I'm coming back to, you know, the next day I got to go, go by there on a dog leg and, and uh, no, nothing had been there. So I, I walk over to, and as I'm walking over to, I think, hmm, I should, uh, I should adjust that just a little bit. Like I, I had this, the, the, the trigger not, not set quite right. It was kind of flared on me and, and I was walking over to it and, and right there, then I, I go through the ice. Oh. I go through the ice. And as I'm falling, and I'm falling forward, of course, it's the way you go through ice. <laughs> I'm falling forward, and, and my face is headed to the set 330. Oh. <laughs> yeah. And so I roll sideways, and, uh, you know, because I do not want to land in this thing, and I go <laughs> I go through the ice just like kaboom, like, you know, like a, a log falling, and I go through, and the trap comes with me. So now I'm in the water. I'm underwater, but I'm afraid to put my foot down. There's a set trap right there. <laughs> so I kind of swim my way up, and it's, it's deep. I'm not sure whether I could stand up and touch bottom or not, but 
but it, it's deep, and I grab a hold of the of the cattails, and I pull myself out, and I, I pull the trap up, and and uh, no, I'm soaked. I'm soaked, and I'm I'm about 18 miles away from uh, as my trail goes away from the cabin. So I just you can either try and build a fire, which probably I couldn't. You know, you you got to move through all that deep snow to keep wood to keep the fire going. So the best speed was my was my solution, and I was on a snowmobile that day, so I just I flew back to the cabin. But it took me took my wife probably 20 minutes to get me out of my my climb gear and that because I was it was all frozen like iron. Yeah, I bet. Like I couldn't. Yeah, I was I was frozen that 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 solid right. And but you know if you, if my snowmobile had went through it, I'd have been wet there too. But it could have been a whole different story. Yep, absolutely. You know, mm-hmm. so it's, 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 you just have to be aware of that stuff, right? But yeah, otters are you know <laughs> it happens all the time. Usually it's only. I only end up, you know, you go through and in a sudden uh, surprise and it's up to your waist or whatever, and that's not bad. But yeah, going swimming with your tube floating in the water is another story. <laughs> yeah, that that is that is no good. Uh, do you do you use the Argo uh, more on the on the shoulder season for that reason? Yes, and I use the Argo like I have three different loops that total that over that 300 kilometers, and I use the Argo up in the north. And it's uh, about a 54-kilometer loop, so 30-some miles. And I, when we get out there, the first day we get out there, I, I get the generator going, and Sandy takes care of the, uh, of the wood, and everything's frozen. You know, lots of times it's, you know, it'll be 25 below zero inside the cabin and, and that kind of stuff. So everything's frozen. So her and the dog, she, she starts getting the, the, uh, the fire going and, and uh, warming everything up, and I'll take off at that point and... and uh, you know, we're probably into the cabin by 8.30 at night, and, and uh, I'll get back anywhere between, depending on how much fur I get, between 2 and 3 in the morning. And uh, by that time, she'll be in bed. And the, the first night, though, things are so cold that, that you actually oh. crawl into the sleeping bag in your snowmobile suit. <laughs> yeah, it takes forever to warm a cabin up. I don't think people, a lot of people don't realize how long it actually takes. And the only thing that doesn't freeze is ketchup. <laughs> like, I'm not. Like, I'm not sure you should eat ketchup. Like everything else freezes solid. Like uh, uh-huh. thirty below, you can still squirt ketchup out if you want to. Yeah. But yeah, she, she's a tough girl, man. She is. She is such a, a sense of humor because I'll I'll come in at, at three in the morning, and by then it'll be fairly warm, and I'll wake her up and I'll say, you know, you, you need to get out of some clothes and 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 get underneath the. And <laughs> but you'll see her there. And she'll have her toque on and her, her snowboard suit on and. And their hood up and everything, and should be sound asleep in bed. <laughs> not many women, not many women are that tough or have that sense of humor. Let me tell you. <laughs> so, I'll uh, I'll put you know get into bed at at, at two thirty, three o'clock in the morning. I'll probably sleep until late. Yeah. And then get up and and I'll have a cup of coffee and and, and breakfast, and then I'll be gone for that day. I'll I'll get a snowmobile and and I'll I'll do over a hundred. And the last day is, is usually uh, wolf baits and, and uh, beaver and that kind of stuff. And, and that's, a, you know, another, another hundred and some there, right? So that adds up to over, over, over 300, but some of it doesn't take. Like wolf baits, you know, one, you know, if you've got wolves, you've got, uh, you got lots of work. But, you know, nine times out of ten, you, you, you drive by and there's not a track or nothing else, so you don't even get off the machine, right? Yeah, you don't want to disturb, disturb it, right? Yeah, so you can make really, you know, so those days you're really making good time. And, uh, you know, it, it, uh, it, it just, it's one of those situations that, 
I, I love the Argo because I'm so safe and so secure in it. Nice heated pad. Warm. Yes. Yeah. But, you know, like 54 kilometers, 30 miles uh, is, a, is a long trip in an Argo. Yeah. How fast do, you, do those things go? Well, I, I use my GPS, and on my GPS, I, I can have, uh, like, uh, velocity made good. So that tells me what I'm averaging, including all my stopping and everything. And it, once again, it depends on how much fur I'm getting because i got to, you know, set up camera and get the cameraman out, that kind of stuff. And, and, you know, so that slows things down a lot. But I average 14 kilometers an hour. Okay. Is what I average. In- including okay. stopping, and, yeah. That, that includes all my time with the fur and everything else. Yeah. And it... In reverse, when you're talking about a snowmobile, I average 23 kilometers an hour. Mm-hmm. So it's not that much faster. You know what I'm saying? It, it, it's amazing. Because uh, it, what really takes up the time is, is making your sets, changing stuff, all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. You know? It, yeah, it, I, w- I would have thought the snowmobile would be like three times faster. You know, if, if all you're doing, by the time I get down into... Um, my wolves, I end, I end at the end of February, and after that, then I'm I'm just I'm checking otter and beaver and that. Yeah, I can I can go faster then, especially if we're not if we're not freezing or, or blowing snow and that. But the trend the last few years with late season snow is they become just brutal for for beaver trapping because here you almost always start on the south facing side of a house when you're setting up because that is the last place to freeze because uh, the sun. You know, that, that's mm-hmm. getting sunshine at, at the most. And it's the first place to, to thaw in the spring as well, right? Mm-hmm. So you always start there. But south facing, you know, means that here where uh, our winds are from the north or northwest or northeast all the time, that's where yeah. the biggest drift are. Yeah. 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 So, you know, we just, just had a, a, a terrible winter for it. And it just, you get out there and, and you you got three or four sets on a, on a house. And you might have an hour worth of shoveling to do, you know? Like, I mean, it gets to be a grind. That gets that old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, now, did you have the – I'm curious if you had the trap line before you started the show, or did they both happen about the same time? This trap line happened at the same time. Okay. I've had other trap lines. Yeah. I've trapped all my life. Uh, we have two different – um, ways you can trap in, in Alberta. There are the registered lines where you own a line, and there are resident lines where and resident lines take place on private land. It would be much similar to your your situation. Yeah. I just have to get permission from the landowner. Mm-hmm. And in Alberta, that permission has to be in writing. It has to identify the legal land location. And if I'm going to use uh, lethal snares, I have to, he has to the owner has to check off the fact that he's approving that. And that's where the vast majority of coyotes come from. Coyotes and muskrats all come from private land. The the, the vast majority, because that's in that's the farm where country. Life is yeah. easy for them. Yeah, the farm country exactly. Yeah, life is easy for them. Huh. It's it's a tough gig up in the big bush. <laughs> so I guess what I was you getting know, at there was you haven't been able to run the trap line without filming. Not this one, no, no. <laughs> everything has been it's been. Um, like I got my buddy, Trapper uh, Gord, Gordy Clawson, and he says to me, he says, I can't believe how much of your life you document. I said, well, <laughs> Gordy, you see it as that, but most people think that I'm, I'm just showing what I want to show, you know? Yeah. But there's a lot of just common everyday stuff, and, and I have to do more common everyday stuff, like 
there are days when you've got half frozen beaver there and you're chopping them up into into bait mat and and the, the world ends up looking like a, a charnel house and and you know i have to show more of that stuff because that's all part of the work you know we, we're going out to this weekend to put up the winter's wood and we'll, we burn depending on 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 the winter between four to six cords of wood well we, we actually did a lot less last year because we upgraded the the uh uh our heater and that's you know that's one of the things that ended up uh, being on, on shows and that was to put a new wood heater in and uh you know, we can't do that during the winter. I know, I know people that go out and the first thing they do is, is get wood every time they go out. It's like, are you kidding yeah, me? That's crazy. Time for that. Yeah. Yeah, I have I have wood put up and it's dry and it's out of the snow and everything else. I mean, it's, it's there. You just pack it by the armful after armful in to, in to get, you know, into the fire. Um, you know, you get, there's a lot of preparation that goes on. We have to go out to, uh, we had a, one of our bridges. We have a, one of these crazy creeks that I, I, it has a lot of spring in it or whatever, it won't freeze. And because of uh, erosion and beavers and all that kind of stuff, it is like you go straight down two feet to the water and then it's four feet deep. And then not even in the width of, of the Argo, the length of the Argo, then you're going back up at four feet plus two feet and you can't do it. You know, you, 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 I, I've tried to put the Argo through it and I'll go down and I'll bottle it down standing on the nose for, and then I can back out of it, man, but I can't get across it yeah. unless it's frozen. So we build a bridge there all the time, and especially then if you're running across it in snow, you can't, you can't cross it. And uh, that bridge is washed out. We've had a, just the most unbelievable last couple of years for water around here. That bridge is washed out, and I've got to, uh, uh, so I've got to go up and uh, I've got to sawmill. I'm going to slab a bunch of, uh, of trees and that and, and rebuild the bridge. Those kind of things. The, the, you have wind, and when, when you have wet years, like we had two wet years in a row, the, the wind blows over so many trees because the, the ground is so saturated that they measure of a blow to, to blow them over. So, you know, there are days when, you know, you pack two gallons of, of uh, mixed chainsaw gas with you and you use it all. Now, think about that. That is a lot of fuel <laughs> in a chainsaw. <laughs> You know, and sometimes you, you get a, an early spring, or pardon me, not, not spring, but an early fall. Like you get a snow in September, which is just a nightmare because there's still leaves on, but that snow will be wet oh, and they'll land on all, all those. Yeah, everything you, you and me would know about. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then you take and cut that. I did one one uh, little loop, and actually did, it's just like an elbow on one of my on one of my loops. But it was 11 kilometers, and I walked literally walked that 11 kilometers with a chainsaw, and I would walk back and move the argo up. And I walk, you know, like I mean, you do it 100 yards at a time. But I did that whole 11 kilometers. I I walked it twice, you know, <laughs> with a chainsaw in my hand, right? And it, it was like one of those nightmares. And, oh, yeah, I don't I don't care for that, especially when you get into the swamp spruce, and that that wet snow knocks them over. Well, then that wet snow freezes, and all, of course the the swamp spruce are so hairy. They're all froze down, so then you got to you got to limb that, that tree to get it out of your way because everything's frozen. It's you all can't stuck pull it in, out, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> all all the beauty of the trap line. It's it's good that you're showing all that and not just uh, not just the the hero shot with the furs. <laughs> well, that's part of what we've got into though. Is we've decided we've we've started up a community, and it is a. Um, it is a, a subscription-based uh, community. We're on, of course, 
we're on Amazon Prime. You know, there's 85 million subscribers that have get Amazon Prime for free, and yep. and we're huge there, and we're huge on our on our YouTube and all that. But we're trying to find ourselves a little more freedom. Uh, you know, like the the deplatforming on the uh, on oh, social yeah. media. Yeah, Amazon could drop you tomorrow if they decide to. Absolutely. Well, and what, and what they've done is they, they've reduced what they pay. So it's not even worth doing anymore, even though we're, we're top of the heap as far as the numbers that we turn, you know, like, I mean, how many viewers we have every day, but they just keep dropping it, dropping it because it, to begin with, of course, they have a great payout and, and get this. I mean, you know, to make, to, to, to make, you know, I know some people that make $10,000 a month from Amazon and they were getting paid six cents an hour of streaming. Wow. Okay, that was that was the good days. Now we're out to two cents an hour, you know, because now there's they have so much uh, um, content there, right? Yeah. So uh, you got to go somewhere else. And YouTube, you know, the, the deplatforming and, and demonetization of YouTube is, is crucial, because I mean, other than the, the 13 episodes they produce every year for the TV show, I'm, I'm, you know, you get it up to YouTube, and it, you know, you don't make a lot of money there, you know. Oh, it's you, a good bonus though. It's a bonus, but maybe you get a thousand dollars a month or whatever. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, but now they demonetize anything that has a child in it. So I can't even. I can't tell you how bad this hurts my soul. But I can't even take my put up the shows that I've done with my grandchildren, traffic. And while I understand that for people who live in Seattle and 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 take over the the, the mayor's office or whatever as as their right think that trapping is, is abhorrent or whatever. This is my life. This is my history. This is, this, this is you know. Yeah, they can choose not to watch these, They can choose, exactly. Exactly. But now anything that has my grandchildren in it has been demonetized. Some of it they've even, they've even banned. And I've had arguments with them. And, and I say, you know, very recently, but you are showing, you're showing you skinning an animal. I said, well, that's reality. And they said, but, but we can't show that. And there are children there. Like, the children are exposed to <laughs> I said, but do you have children? Yes. Do you ever eat at McDonald's? Oh, of course, all the time. I said, how do you think that meat got in between the, the, the pieces of that, of that bun? I said, just because you choose to ignore or turn a blind eye to how it was killed and processed, you cannot punish me for killing and processing my own. And, you know, I have brought them around to my way of thinking, but they all fall back to their leftist propaganda, and that's not right. We should all hold hands and sing Kumbaya. <laughs> and so they, they deplatform me. You know, like, I mean, you'll put up one, one YouTube video, and it will blow up. You know, for me, blowing up is, you know, 50,000, 60,000 uh, views overnight. And you do something the next week, and you put it up, and it'll get 500 in the yeah. same time. Obviously, they're doing something to, to change the algorithm. Absolutely. So that's one of the things that we're doing now. I mean, even Facebook is, is you know, we, we have very active. We have two Facebook. We have a Facebook page and, and a Facebook, Facebook private group. And, and both are very popular. And uh, we're, we, we have both Twitter and, and Instagram, but they're just, they're, they're more effort than everything. Because to do anything <laughs> on Instagram, you have to do it off your phone and, like, I mean, I have everything in a computer that, you know, off of my cameras and all that kind of stuff. Like, I mean, I have an edit suite that, that I, I could have done the Pirates of the Caribbean on 
And then to try and downgrade it enough to put on my phone and that, and so Instagram doesn't work so much for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but we have went to a place called Locals.com, so we have uh, Trapping Ink uh, yep. TV. And we, people we, can we find set, that set on your own. website. It's trappingink.locals.com. Exactly. Thank you. Yeah, and and it's you know three dollars a month or whatever is what it costs. You get all of all of our stuff is going to be there. We're, we're slowly getting everything up. Like, if you want to watch season six, that won't be released to to the U.S. until uh, October. It, it's going up there right now. I mean, there's the first ten season, ten episodes of the season are up there. Uh, part of that is it allows me to get around my broadcast contract. Like, we broadcast contracts are are important things, but because it's a a subscription community, I get I get around it. Okay. But so so you so you yeah. have uh, you're able to the broadcast contract basically restricts when and where you can air the shows. Oh yeah, oh yeah. TV is is the ugliest business ever. It's it's like music or everything else. You wonder why you know somebody has had a, been a huge success as a musician or whatever, and they're broke when they're forty. It was because everybody else makes the money, right? Mm-hmm. And it, that it. You know, if you're not careful with the contracts you sign on that, they might own the right to use your, your stuff in perpetuity. And when you have something like our show that's, you know, such a huge hit, you know, like, I mean, we have uh, the channel we air on offers to buy commercials from us so that they, they can advertise, you know, either uh, competing sponsors or their own people in, in, in within uh, our, our show. And it, it would become part of a, part of a bigger package that, that, of course, they would – you know, they would capitalize with with other areas and that and make much more money off of our own show than we were. <laughs> yeah. TV is, 20-some years of TV, man, TV is dirty, dirty, dirty. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, you know, you uh, end up trying to find a place where you can be free, of, uh, like the free form of a podcast and how we can talk yeah. for however long we want. One might be 40 minutes, the next one might be two hours. And, and, it, and it's easy. And I want that kind of freedom. To eventually, if, if I can get enough people to um, subscribe at the, uh, you know, three bucks a month, I will. That's, everything will be there. I won't be on TV anymore. Yeah. Because I can, I can have a 19-minute show. I can have a 40-minute show. You know, I can do whatever I no want. I'm not, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not limited by uh, you know, what's proper to put on TV or not. And... The beauty of as soon as somebody has to pay a nickel, they're not going to pay a nickel. To, you know, a, a hater isn't going to pay a nickel to, to, to come troll you. True. And I can kick them out if I want to. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a it's a double-edged sword, I guess, because you kind of need. I don't want to say need, but it helps to have things like YouTube and Amazon Prime to get discovered. Yes. No question. And I mean, we, we will still, you know, still be putting stuff out there, not as much as we did. And it will be, you know, it will be pretty dated by the time it gets there. Like, by the time stuff goes to Amazon this year, it's going to be uh, next April. That's, that's when the, the first of, uh, of season six will be going to Amazon. You know, it's just, it, because of, of broadcast contracts and, and the fact that, um, uh, we're putting it up on on our own community. It's just it's just the way it's got to be. If we can if we can break free the chains of a broadcast contract and the uh, you know we can show our sponsors that we can we can do as good or better for them in, through the those digital platforms. I mean things like podcasts and that. I mean you've had some monetary success with your podcast. 
Yeah, I mean, it, not nothing on the level of what you're doing um, uh, on your show or anything. Uh, but for the amount of effort I put into it, I'm pretty happy with. I'd I'd always like more, but um, I, I I'm happy with it so far. Yeah. Yeah, but there comes a point where you have to give up your day job and get at it, one, one or the other, right? So it's got to pay. Yeah. And we we get the number one comment we get every time we put up a, an episode. Oh, I love the show. You guys are so great. Blah, 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 you know, wonderful, wonderful, blah, 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 blah. I wish it was an hour long. <laughs> <laughs> That's the number one comment. I wish it was an hour long. I wish it was too, but, you know, the, the, the format doesn't allow it. So when you were talking about all the stuff that we should be showing, uh, we started putting up some stuff that we're calling rough cuts, and we're putting it up on, on our community. And we did some from spring beaver shooting, and you know it's 40 minutes and, and that kind of stuff. But it shows a lot of the background. Mm-hmm. That stuff we could never get on TV because there's just not time for it. You know, yeah. if I'm sitting there doing an otter set, and you've got by the time you take out commercials, by the time you you uh, do your, your credits opening and all that, you've, you've got roughly 22 minutes of content, you know? And, you know, so that breaks into, you know, four blocks of a little over five minutes each. And when you're doing any one set, think about that. Think about if, you, if you're showing how you're doing a trail set for, for an otter or if you're, if you're, you're chopping out a, a, out a beaver or whatever. It's pretty tough to condense that into just five minutes, mm-hmm. you know, let alone anything else, you know? So, I mean... This gives us the freedom. This is as podcast is giving us freedom to, to talk and express what, how we want to. Uh, this is going to give me a lot more freedom. As, as soon as I can make it pay, uh, we'll we will we'll move away from the from the broadcast uh, scene altogether. That's that's great. Uh, have Have you seen other people in different industries go that route and find success with it? Absolutely. Um, in the um, actually. Locals.com is owned by um, Dave Rubin, and he was one. He is a big podcaster, and he he uh, moved away from Patreon. I don't know if you ever heard all that story, what, what the war that they had because Patreon demonetized um, uh, somebody that they didn't agree with on their their uh, uh, platform, and so him and uh, Jordan Peterson and others they they, they went elsewhere, okay. and Jordan went on to. To, to YouTube and, and that kind of stuff. Um, I know people that have been huge within the digital platform. One of them is Randy Newberg. Uh, yep. I don't know if you've on your uh, own adventures. Yes. Well, now it's uh, it's uh, Randy Newberg Hunter or or Hunt Talk Radio is his podcast. Okay. And he's strictly he hasn't been on TV in years, and he has had the success in uh, in Amazon and he's had success in, in YouTube, and and everything they do. Lots and lots of stuff. But he's looking also to to move to a, a subscription, you know, uh, because he's getting his his uh, you know monetization is getting cut down. At one time, you know, he he was running so many millions of minutes on on Amazon that he was they, had, they set a whole new level for him to be, be paid at because he it was very very popular, right? And they wanted to encourage him. Well, now they have so much content that isn't it amazing in a world where if you can throw a football further than somebody else, you are to be desired and pay millions and millions of dollars. But when somebody like Amazon gets the top uh, outdoor program like that, and then when they can get, uh, you know, a thousand other mediocre ones, those thousand other mediocre ones are more important than, than, than the top one, right? Mm-hmm. And so they, 
go for that, that that quantity rather than quality. So yeah, he's done that. But I mean, now he's looking at you know maybe he needs to start his own community as well, something where where people you know can support uh, directly support what's going on. You know, I mean, and when you look at at, at how we we do stuff today, whether it's Netflix or or any of that kind of stuff, uh, people are willing to pay to get what they want. You know, and and we're not talking about huge dollars. But you do need lots of lots of people. Yes. Yeah. They they say the the hardest thing is the the first penny, right? Uh, if you can get the hardest part is just to get a paying customer. But once you have them, it's uh, it's it's a lot easier to uh, to 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 work within that and adjust your what you got to charge and everything like that. Well, we we were you know what we actually wanted to do? We wanted twenty bucks a year from everybody. That's what we wanted. Yeah. <laughs> that was it. But, but locals will only their minimum is three dollars per month. Okay, that's their minimum. That's that, that's the way they're set up, and that's so that's the platform that we're that we're we're working within. Uh, we get things like we know every one of our subscribers. We have their email, their contact information. We know analytics on them. You know whether they have taken a month off or any of that kind of stuff. All that stuff that you never get from YouTube. Yeah, you know, they, you don't yeah YouTube doesn't from... give you much at all. You get stats. No, that's and, about it. So what if they deplatform you tomorrow and you have a hundred thousand uh, subscribers and you can't reach them no more and you can't in any way tell them where you've gone or what, what what's going on? Yeah, exactly. You know, like I mean, so that's a that's a big bonus right there is to be able to communicate. And we're we're hoping to build this into a lot more where you know maybe maybe we have get-togethers at the NTA with you know with with, with people and, and and stuff like that or, or we don't know we don't know where it's going to go. Um, I am, you know, respectful of all of the people that take the time to watch us and that, and they have lots of good ideas. Maybe somebody, will, you know, will, will have one that, that 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 really takes off for us. I know that we've we've had a little bit of success of, of as far as subscribers go, and, and that that's pleasant. I mean, that 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 people are, you know, willing to to support you fiscally, you know, like that. Yeah. Is there is there an avenue to to um kind of develop your own platform incorporating advertisers uh, that, that you would manage as opposed to having, say, Google or YouTube find the companies to advertise? Uh, I can like I can advertise all of my sponsors within my shows on – I can leave it all in. Like when I, when I go to Amazon, I can't leave billboards or, or, or anything like that. Yeah, it's got to be. There can't be a. There can't be a, an external link or anything like that. Uh, and you know, be, I can leave all of that in on 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 locals. The, that is something they're talking about. They're also talking about bringing out an app. And I mean, everything's very new. It's it's uh, it's. Uh, there are different companies. We got to the point about a year ago where people decided all of a sudden realized that everything is owned by Alphabet Company. Or Facebook, you know, and they controlled everything. Yeah. And even though they hid behind the, it is a private company, my private company, and you're here as a guest, and I can control you that way. They're looking at there's there's a lot of, you know, rumblings from governments about about uh, you know monopolies and syndications and and as much as I don't like the leftist spin of big tech and all that. The last people I want controlling the government or controlling the uh, internet is the government. Mm-hmm. 
Like, I mean, for God's sake, you can barely buy a fishing license online or, <laughs> or, or, or pay your taxes online or, or pay a speeding ticket online. And, and half the time, the, you know, their the websites don't work. And, you know, like, I don't want them controlling it. But we need to have some balance. And that's where these things like locals.com has come from, is, is he's trying to set up something that, that is, you know, outside of their realm. You know, where, where the, uh, the people who are generating the content have the control. And that's kind of nice. You know, it's, it, it, it's, been, uh, it's been enjoyable. It's building. You know, it's, it's only been up for a few months, but it, it's building and, and uh, we're excited. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. I'm always, I always wonder about how people who have their own shows uh, or, or even like magazines, how much effort you, you have to spend to find advertisers and sponsors and, and go through all that and how much of that actually comes to you. Did, do you, did you notice, uh, like, like, like how much effort have in the past when, you know, just working with on the show, how, how much effort did you have to work early on to actually find sponsors? Oh, worst job ever. I, I, I hate it. That's why <laughs> I, you know, <laughs> I don't do much of it because just because I, I can't stand doing it, calling people up and asking, you know, it, it's a, I, I, I'm more successful when I can sit down and talk to somebody. Mm-hmm. But for a lot of companies, you're dealing with uh, with their marketing company, you know. And the toughest part about all of this, especially when you are, I am the you know the the uh, executive producer and the executive janitor, you know. Like <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I'm so what I'm selling all the time is me. Mm-hmm. Worst job ever. Yeah, worst product ever sell. You, you <laughs> you're so wonderful. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not kidding you. Think about that. Yeah. You can hand me anything. You can hand me a nut and bolt. You can hand me an axe. You can hand me anything. And I can sit there and, and extol the virtues of that all day long. Ask me about why my show is good, and I kind of look at the, at the floor and scuff my toe. I'm damn happy to have Nielsen ratings because I look at that and say, there, 3.24 million people. That's why we're good. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> No, it, it is the worst job, and uh, I I like it when I can sit down. Like a lot of our sponsors are, are small co- companies, or we started with them when they were small. Like Argo, I have been with in one form or, or, or another for just about uh, 20 years. Actually, I, and I had a history with them before that. It is the toughest job is to get sponsorship, and, and most of it is, believe it or not, you spend a lot of your day teaching the marketing guy about marketing really? and a lot of them well the big big companies they all it's all numbers right mm-hmm. and so when we first started in hunting we were on the outdoor channel and uh it only only aired in the u.s and so everything and i remember dealing with the big marketing houses because you would go to you know people like uh uh like leupold or nosler or, or winchester winchester browning uh and and the ammunition companies on, they all had these big marketing companies. And the big marketing company would say, well, what's your numbers? And at that time, you know, uh, Outdoor Channel was just large enough to have um, marketing numbers. At that time, you had to have about 30 million uh, subscribers. And the worst part about that was that when you got that small of a sample in the, in the size of a population like the U.S., you had a, a plus or minus swing of, of 3%, of, of three points. So, you may be you may be have uh, uh, you may have a minus 
three rating, a zero rating, or a plus three rating. You know, a plus three is really really big number, right? And you know, so they they would ask you for your numbers, and of course you that would have cost you money to get from your channel that you're paying to be on. You know, like, <laughs> that's, yes, you can hear the sarcasm in my voice. <laughs> you're paying them for this, and they and they have these, so then you'd have to you'd have to pay for those numbers from them. So they'd make you jump through that and then they'd look at it and then they'd use that line on you. And so you'd talk about focus demographics and you'd talk about this, that, and the next thing. And, and uh, uh, it was, it was always really, really tough where I quickly figured out where it was best is where I could sit down and talk with somebody. Mm-hmm. And so if I could start with a small corporation where I was dealing with somebody who worked in the plant or, or dealing with, you know, the, the guy who owns the company or whatever, that was, that was far more important. And I could show, you know, I mean, I could, I could, I could see the success and, and uh, whereas marketing company, once again, you might, might be turning big numbers. You might be turning big numbers for them, but they don't tell you that they, they figure you're going to use it, you know, as a bargaining chip, you know, right. they still <laughs> want to deal with you. They just don't want to pay you what you're worth. Right. right. <laughs> and you learn some, you learn some terrible lessons. The first lesson that you learn, and it takes a while to learn it is that your first deal is your best deal. And whatever you settle for the first time, that's all you're ever going to be worth. You might bump it up 10% or whatever, but if, if you decide that you're going to represent them for four fishing rods and a handful of tackle, it's never going to get any better. <laughs> <You know? laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Laugh. I know everybody laughs when I get to this part. <laughs> but it's the truth. It's the truth. If they're not, if they're not paying you money, uh, they're, not, they're not considering you an actual uh, investment in advertising and marketing. I mean, there's a reason why pro staff then became brand ambassadors because it was like a much more friendly thing. Pro staff was kind of this arrogant guy who was, you know, going to tell you how things should go. And But a brand ambassador is a kind of more approachable person that you walk up to and talk to and all that. But in most cases, you know, the, the brand ambassador, they're, they're just people working for a, just want a free shirt stuff. And, a, and a hat. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they are. And if you settle for free stuff, that's all you ever work. Yeah. You know? I mean, there, there's a point where, you know, when Ford advertises on NBC or AB, ABC or whatever, they don't do it for, for you know, truck decals or whatever. It's, it, it, there's money involved. And it is no different. But now you've got a bunch of little, little people who are not very sophisticated. Once again, they're, you know, like me, they're probably more capable with a toilet brush in my hand than, than, than you know, dealing with a, with a, uh, a marketing manager or whatever, right? One of the funniest things that has happened recently was the shift to internet. And about, again, I'm, I'm saying four or five years ago, everything was going to be internet. Everything was going to be Facebook. Everything was going to be digital. And TV was dead. TV was dead. And we dealt with a lot of these marketing managers, and, and you know they, these are guys that are, you know my age or you know or in the fifties and that, yeah. and they didn't know the first thing about digital marketing. And you got you, you talk with ten in a day, and you had ten different outlooks on it. And I was like, God, I guess I need to learn something. So there was this kid that worked for um, Kuyu, and I don't you probably would never heard of him. A very popular hunting clothing, but it's out out west here. They make, pat- they make backpacks. Yes, they make backpacks. Well, poor backpacks, but their, their clothing is better. Uh, okay. Kuyu is, uh, um, uh, you know, they're for 
the elite hunter. They they, they sponsor served a lot of the you know the marathon hunters and runners and that kind of stuff. Anyway, I sat down with this kid. Happened to be at doing seminars at a sports show where he was there, and he was from from California, and he's like the typical guy. Or my opinion of uh, of a lot of typical guys from California, and he's got a, a haircut that looks like a, a lawnmower went nuts, and and he's got you know a tarp grommet in one ear and a bone in his nose and, and all this <laughs> kind of stuff, and and so and I never know where to look when you're talking to him. It's just like it's just like when you when you your buddy invites you over and his and his sixteen year old daughter walks out and she's got less clothes on than, than Victoria's Secret model, like. Pretty soon you're, you're you're looking at the tree above your head to try and talk to something when you're trying to talk to it, right? You know, <laughs> yeah. Same thing. I don't know whether like, am I supposed to stare at them holding his nose, or I'm not supposed to. I don't know what to do. You know, I'm too old for this stuff anymore. <laughs> but anyway, I sat down to him and I said, "Tell me about this. How does this work? I can't understand." You know, one time in my life I sold vehicles, and I knew that if I got people to walk through the door, I had you know, a, a one percent a chance of, of making a sale. If I got them to, to sit down and talk out, bumped up to five percent. If I, we went for a test drive, whoo, all the way to twenty percent. They come talking about color, other five percent. You know that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. right? We had all these stages that you knew where you're at in the game. Nobody knows where they are in, in digital. And he said to me, you know, the first thing he said was the thing about social media is to forget about the media and remember the social. And I looked at him and I said, oh, great, quite Chang. That makes a lot of sense. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm frustrated. I'm very frustrated. He says, no, think about that. He says, you, me, and everybody does things for their friends that they wouldn't do for pay. And I was like, fire! The light went off, and I would have never made that leap on my own. And yes, it makes sense. You know, and when you want to grow something, you want to you know, these people to identify with you because as a friend, they will share your stuff. They will, they will recommend you. They will do all that kind of stuff. So where we were always looking and all these marketing managers that I'm dealing with, we're all looking at a return on investment, ROI, right? Yeah. We're looking at, you know, if I put $10,000 into digital, what do I get back? You know, do I get back, you know, $10,001 to get back a million? You know, that's, that's the kind of stuff we're, we're looking at. It doesn't make any, any difference. These people need to identify with you. So even more than ever, you're selling yourself or you're selling the legend of yourself. And that's, that's what, that's what is, is so important. And as I got going into this deeper and deeper and I started understanding, like if you have a, a actual business uh, Facebook page, there are tools in there that you can use that can allow you to compare your Facebook page to anybody's page. And it can show you things like, like, you know, how many people are are uh, connecting with you and how many people are connecting with the other person and, and your activity every day and, and all that kind of stuff. And it is amazing how you might compare. You know, the days of uh, buying likes on Facebook. You know, it's frowned <laughs> upon, but there's still, there's still a term about uh, organic or, or, um, or paid, paid, right? Yeah. So, yeah. And... Facebook has changed it so even if you take out ads with them, that is no longer organic. Even though you're paying for an ad, it is no longer organic. Whereas, you know, you could pay some kid in, in India to turn his monkeys loose on the computer and get you a million likes or whatever. <laughs> you know, but then you need to see if those people are interacting with you or not. And that's what some of these analytics show you on, on Facebook. 
And so as I learned about all this, I started incorporating this stuff into my discussions with marketing managers a lot. And I, here I am putting on a course for these guys. Yeah, you know, crazy. other guys that are in their 50s, and, and they're, now they're starting to understand. But while I'm putting this course on, I'm showing how good I am. You know, they would, or how good my, my, my you universe under, is. Where, you understood how marketing worked but, and more than they did. And, and well, they would look at, they would look at, uh, at Jim Shockey. Jim Shockey has 600,000 likes on his Facebook page. On the average day, you know, he, he has, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a positive growth of 0.01%. You know, I have, uh, you know, 15,000 or whatever. An average day, I, I, I grow 3 4%. You know, I have that much more, you know, I, my, my reach is so much larger than his, you know, even though he has 600,000 people, his reach might be zero in a day. And my, my, my reach might be four or 500,000, depending on what we're doing. You know, those are the kind of numbers that you can use to, to level the playing field, the little guy. That is one of the benefits of digital. This has got a long way from tracking, hasn't it? <laughs> no, but it's, it's, uh, it's fascinating for me on a, on a personal level, in addition to, uh, just being generally pretty pretty interesting. Well, yeah, but what it is though is that you can. The thing about digital is it's digital, and we keep talking about how phony things are because we knew that people were buying Facebook likes and they're buying YouTube likes, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, it's it's one of those things we're throwing the baby out with the bathwater because not all of it is fake. Like those numbers that Facebook shows you, the the reach on your page, the the, the uh, you know, the, the interactions, that kind of stuff, those are real. They can't be fudged. And when you can show that and throw some comparisons in, you know, throw, compare yourself to anybody out there. All of a sudden, they're like, who is this little guy that's trapping in? He, but he's only got 15,000 people that like his face. That doesn't matter. Look at his reach, you know? Yeah. I don't know why people like or don't like pages. Um, I don't know whether they think that they're filling up their computer or or I don't know whether they think that they don't want anybody to search their history and see a trapping, <laughs> trapping like in their, in their history or something. I don't know whether it's one of those three little things. I don't know. But it's funny. When the Facebook first started, it was nothing to get huge numbers. Like, I mean, we, and we have over the times, you know, one of the, the dirtiest things that Facebook ever did was that you can't change or rename your page without losing it all. Mm-hmm. You know, so as you change stuff, you know, and, and get less awkward or, or get better or whatever, then you lose all of that. Yeah. You know, one time we had pages, you know, a page that uh, for a hundred, and that was, that was over a million, and that was all organic. You know, now, now it's a struggle to get 20,000, you know? Yeah. But we have the, we, we, we are reaching people, and that's what's important. And that's what's important to show to these media people. And, and now, as I got good at that, TV's back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it might be temporary, media. but... Well, yeah, it might be, but all of these media people had, you know, spent so much money just blindly throwing it into, you know, the people that had 600,000, uh, or I'm getting a, getting a call from Morley Smith, Wolf guy. I'm going to have to call him back. Um, I, uh, you know, they, they, they were dumping all of that money into these, uh, you know, buying just based on the Facebook page likes and all that type of stuff. And they weren't getting nothing for it. So all of a sudden, everybody went away from that, right? And because uh, nobody understood what they were buying or what they were getting. And it, it, it's amazing. But when you take a, you know, uh, you have a, a great digital platform, like what we have between between the YouTube and between the Amazon Prime and, and uh, 
uh, you know, Facebook and all those kind of things, you know, our, our reach, our, our universe is gigantic. You know, when we, we throw into it, uh, you know, 3.24 million viewers, you know, people that will tune in, you know, at least once a week or whatever on uh, on TV in Canada, you know, with the, it's, there's only 37 million people in Canada. That's, that's, that's a great number. But I can do those kind of numbers between YouTube and Amazon Prime in a month, you know? Yeah. And, you know, that, then there's things on YouTube that you can use too. Like I'm, I'm telling people – Trying to be honest, because I get asked these questions so many times, and, and I'm not sure whether the people ever take it away. Because they're all looking for one simple, easy answer. Oh, be a good traffic. Okay, that we got that. So, one of the, you know, things about uh, uh, about YouTube is take a look at at, at what your, um, uh, I always refer to it as your entrapment, but your capture rate. Like, how long do people stay engaged? It's in, it's a, it's your how long is the, your average engagement? Average engagement is nine minutes on uh, on my my YouTube, and that is for since 2015 when I put it up. I average every time somebody clicks on a a, a video, I average nine minutes of, of capture. That's great mm-hmm. if you're one of my sponsors, you know. Yeah. And in, this is in a world where every three seconds is considered a uh, a a, uh, a view. Okay, so if you just clicked on it for three seconds, that's a view. I can you, you you go back in through your 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 engagement and and in my engagement it's over nine minutes. You know, it, it, it those are the kind of things that, that that can give you some balance. And but you need you need to know how how to use it, how to utilize it, right? Yeah, it, it it's not as simple as uh, I mentioned something on a podcast and then they make X number of sales. Um, I think I I read a quote the other day uh, something about the goal of advertising is not to make a sale, it's to bring a potential customer to a place where they're more likely to make a sale. Um, Absolutely. I always describe it as it's my job to make the phone ring. After that, it's up to you. Yeah. Like you, like with the car dealership thing. And, and I feel like certain, like the trapping industry, we're such a small industry and it's so, it seems to be more personal. People connect to uh, this community, like, you know, like any real small uh, community that's specialized, that uh, that that relationship is probably stronger than just somebody seeing a, a, an ad for Pepsi on on uh, TV or something. Well, that's that's what I'm trading on, though, is my credibility. Yeah. And when you have, you know, if you if you grind it out and go through all of five seasons, six seasons we've got now, you see the same thing being used over and over again. Believe me, if it's getting used more than once on my show, I believe in it and it's worth it. Cause I don't have time for junk. I just don't have physical time for it. You know, I, I and that credibility, that, that's the connection that, that, uh, when your, your, uh, fans look at it and, or, or your viewers look at it and they say, well, you know, he ain't got time for junk and look, look where he, where he lives, what he does, you know, I mean, they, they can't make up for garbage. And, and that's what you're doing is you're trading on your credibility to, to make that phone ring. Yeah. And it's very important. And you know what? This is probably where I would be more successful if I wasn't quite so passionate, but it, it's a big responsibility. Mm-hmm. The only good thing about getting old is that you end up with money. And I could afford to do whatever I wanted to. But, uh, you know, if somebody's asking me about whether a $100 trap setter is better than a $30 trap setter, and I'm using the $30 trap setter. I'm going to sell them that. 
They trust you. Know, you. I'm yeah, not you thinking... People's trust is worth a lot. Absolutely. And it, you know, if I recommend something and it fails, that's more on me than it is on the product. Yeah. You know, that's, that's just the way I, <laughs> just the way I feel about it. You know, come from a different time and generation. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it, how's the podcast been going? You, you've been doing that for uh, what, about a year now, or has it been over a year? Yeah. It's been struggling because we, we used to be able to travel a lot. We, we do a bunch as we traveled and, and I don't know a lot of people. If you can tell me people I should talk to, I would love to. Uh, you know, I've, I've, the closer to the general area, the better it's been. Like I've, I've done uh, uh, talks with the fellows from uh, uh, Foundation of uh, Wildlife uh, Foundation Forever in Idaho. They they have a bounty on or a way of paying paying for wolf kills, and, and I've talked with uh, Randy in in Montana, and I've uh, you know I've talked with with uh, folks all, all around the place, uh, but they're all pretty near to me, right? Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, it's harder to, to make those connections, especially that, that Eastern uh, traffic connection. I've had you know, Jeff Dunlap and, and Jeff Haggerty and, and uh, Mark Sagerman and, and those kind of folks on, on the trap, uh, traffic podcast. I probably need to do it again. Um, I had hoped to be in uh, at the NTA, which is what it would have been right about now, wouldn't it? Yeah, it's crazy yeah. how things have changed in the short period yeah, of time. Yeah, but. Uh, we get a lot of great feedback. Uh, I've had a couple of. Uh, the biggest problem is is that you know you never know what you're getting when you when you get somebody agree to come on. Mm-hmm. Some people can talk and talk and talk. Some people I just know I just have to you know you know it's, it's like a kid's toy. You nudge it this way and off it goes. Exactly. And then it runs into something and you straighten it out and nudge it that way and off it goes. <laughs> Those people are wonderful because lots of times we don't just talk about traffic, we talk about everything under the sun. And that's great. Yeah. That's great because, I mean, trappers are just people and we have more interest in, than, than just trapping. But um, I've had some people where it was like yes and no answers and, oh, my gosh, is that tough. <laughs> yeah, and, and being a good interview is a good interviewer is a skill that I'm, I'm learning is, is more difficult than it seems. Like, uh, you know, you watch – guys like Joe Rogan, they, they find ways to get things out of people and, and kind of keep that flow going. And it, it really is a skill. Yeah. Well, but there's, there's a couple different Joe Rogan. Uh, there's the idiot that shows up and smokes dope with the, with his, uh, yeah. comedian buddy. I, yeah. <laughs> I don't care for that. I don't care. I don't care for his, his interview. There's the guy who shows up and whether he interviews his politically left or, or right or, or in the media, or is Elon Musk or whatever? I enjoy him. Yeah, and he's he's very intelligent, and he he uh, asks some very pertinent questions, and he has some really neat viewpoints. You know, uh, I think I think he has to work harder on those ones. I think the other ones he just phones in. <laughs> oh, absolutely! Yeah, you're you just know? having fun with friends on some of it. But yeah, yeah. yeah. When when yeah. the when the interviewer asks the question that the audience is thinking at the time at, at and and asks it the right way and at the right time, I think that's key to to making a successful podcast. Well, and part of it though, I mean, he deals in very up to date um, topics, right? I mean, everything is in the news and that, so he knows what questions people want to. When people phone me up and want to do a podcast, traffic's a very different thing. You know, it's not that much in the news. I mean, I, I always hit on the stuff about, you know, the the uh, the lies that the antis have done and Peter and all that kind of stuff. But, I mean, 
as far as you want to get down to the nitty gritty, we could have we could have talked this long just about the about the different ways I shot muskrats. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I I I could do it without without uh, without thinking about it. It's just that when something is very visible, that's our world today, though. That's when something is very visible, it is uh, it is an easy conversation to have. Uh, it's when there's a little bit more involved in it, right? Like a little bit more, uh, you start talking about historic things and the history of, of, of trapping, you know, the, and, and it's historic place. Like our trapping as a um, pure monetary uh, commercial venture doesn't really exist anymore, and I don't know that it ever will again. But trapping as a method of conservation and control, very, very necessary. Very necessary. You know, we, we can't afford not to have trappers on, on the uh, landscape. We need, we need them. I, we have a, a problem with wolves right now in Alberta. Like we, they say we have between seven and, and 8,500 wolves, you know, and, and our, our wolf density is hitting 11 wolves per thousand square, square kilometers. Well, Ungulate population damage begins at 6.25 wolves per a thousand square kilometers. Hmm. So we're well beyond, we're double of that, right? But we're also learning that you need to you need to kill the entire pack, or the pack fractures and you end up with more packs. So you know that you're, we're learning that more and more, the trapper is becoming the heat heat seeking missile in this. Yeah. You know, in wolf control, because he can do that. He yeah. can get the whole pack. Yeah. You know, aerial gunning doesn't, poison doesn't. You know, uh, that but, but the, the trapper can can and and, and the trapper do it for free. Need, exactly, but what we need to do. <laughs> well, here's the problem: wolf wolf trapping is is a lot of work, a lot of time, uh, keeping those baits going and all that, and then you might catch sure half a dozen wolves or whatever, but they might all have me. So you know what you got for the year? Nothing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely nothing. So there should be a, uh, a reimbursement of, of expenses or something, you know, because we are needed on the, uh, on the landscape. We, uh, we've gone through a, a dance. Alberta has uh, woodland caribou, and the woodland caribou numbers in certain areas are, are dying off. And we haven't hunted woodland caribou in Alberta now since the 80s. That's the first thing. Oh, the numbers are dying. So hunters, trappers, fishermen are the, are the conservationists. We stepped up and said, okay, well, let's not hunt them and, and let them grow back. Well, that wasn't what, what was going on. And so then they worked their way through various things that's going on, and, and uh, they decided that it was wolves, and then it was climate change. And now as we've actually spent some money you know, studying them out, we, we netted a bunch of them in, in 2000 and 2001 and put collars on them and, and we learned an immense amount. And what, and we, we netted both the wolves and, and the, the caribou so we could track them. We've had some stuff done by biologists that was silly. We had uh, some WMUs that were the, where the caribou were in trouble and they had moose population. So they decided that we could kill all the moose off the wolves and leave. <laughs> and I said, but how does that work? Well, there won't be food there. Well, I said, well, aren't they eating the caribou now? Yeah, they are. So I said, so if you kill all the moose off, won't the wolves leave right after they eat the rest of the caribou? Well, no. <laughs> I said, you're not making any sense whatsoever. But we actually did that. We went through that. We went through that. And what ended up happening, you know, they're giving out all these cow tags and calf tags and all this kind of stuff. 
what ended up happening was that the area was very, very hard area to hunt now. But the other WMU across the road wasn't, and there was a whole bunch of cows and calves shot across the road kind of thing. And so it was a, an utter failure. But all through this, we keep doing studies, we keep doing studies. Now, now we've discovered that it's actually got to do with development. So the development of, of roads and seismic lines and all that. So now, we've, now roads are, are much more temporary. They're, they're controlled as far as access. They're, they're controlled. Uh, uh, seismic lines and that are no longer allowed to be straight. They have to be low impact and they wander their way through the woods and all that kind of stuff. But what was, that stops the human encroachment and the pressure on the, on the caribou. The caribou are, are literally the canary, the, the dumb canary in the coal mine. They are, there was nothing, other than a rainbow trout, there was nothing more born to die than a caribou. Like, <laughs> I'm not kidding you. And so then the, we, so we're not, now we don't have human pressure on them. But then we discovered that things like logging is really hard on caribou because the old growth forest gets, gets taken down and, and the lichen that yes, they live absolutely. on yeah. uh, isn't so available. Okay. So then we also discovered through this finally interweaving the, uh, the uh, caribou and the, the wolf studies together, we, we discovered that, look at this. Look at the pattern of where the, where the caribou travel next. The caribou were avoiding cut lines and they were avoiding uh, roads because the wolves traveled them. And the, the, that revelation was unbelievable. So it wasn't just one thing that was causing a problem. You know, it wasn't climate change and it wasn't, wasn't just forestry and it wasn't just the roads and all that. And it wasn't just the wolves, but it was the combination of all. The wolves used the roads and the, and the grids and the grid system and that of seismic and all that to, to travel on and to hunt on and they're very efficient at it. But now all of a sudden, the, you know, the, the caribou over time were avoiding these areas. You know, they wouldn't come within 300 yards of a road, that kind of stuff. It was, it, it, it's a fascinating thing to learn about, but what we've learned is, is really is how little we know and that it could be just a matter of, of uh, you know, this is one of the evolutions of, of uh, you know, that the, we lose uh, species occasionally, not, not, we're, we're not in the middle of any sixth extinction, like they, like they say. We actually got more, more uh, fauna on the, on the face of the earth now than more mass than we've, than we've had in throughout history. But it's, uh, it's, it's amazing, you know, as we get more information that we discovered how badly we've handled it and, and what the actual solution is. I don't, think, I don't think anybody's ready to address the actual solution because that would mean you know, if you're going to save that handful of caribou, uh, you're going to have to take all logging, all oil and gas, all uh, tourism, everything has to come out of those areas in order to try and protect that. And we're, we're down to, in some cases, uh, you know, a handful of uh, a handful of caribou that are left in some of these herds, you know, we're 63, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And they're not, they're not uh, reproducing because black bear, grizzly bear, they all kill a lot of, of uh, calves every spring. Uh, wolves kill a lot. We we did uh, both poisoning for for caribou and uh, for wolves. And get this, the one guy one year did uh, over 60 different ungulate kills. So he killed elk, moose, and deer in order to set up poison sites uh, to you know kill his wolves. And all we've done that and aerial gunning out of helicopters. All we've done. Is we've held the line, we still have 63 caribou in that herd. <laughs> we haven't gained and we haven't lost. But then you have a situation like where there was uh, the um, Copper Mine Mountain. 
there was uh, 18 in that herd. Well, there was a, an avalanche, 14 of them died. You know, like, I mean, those, those, those kind of things happen. So yeah. we still, you know, the, 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 the porcupine hill herd still, still numbers in the thousands. Uh, you know, but it's not being affected. It's not being affected like the, like the, the uh, uh, caribou are on the eastern slopes where there's a lot more development, there's oil and gas, and there's, there's logging and all that stuff, right? Uh, it's a balance that we have to find. Some things you can say, some things you can't. Yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff. Well, Rich. Oh yeah. You got to call. You got to call the Wolfman, and I got to call my boss. So. Um, <laughs> this has been this has been awesome. I really appreciate it. I I had a lot of fun talking with you, and we could probably I'm sure we could talk all day on this stuff. Oh, I, I've I've enjoyed it. Thank you for having me on. Uh, if I could give myself a little bit of a boot, uh, it, they, they can connect to anything about us by going to our website, and it's just www.trappinginc.com, and you can hit all our Facebook, Amazon Prime, local, all that stuff from there. Awesome. I sure appreciate your time and what you're doing for for the the, the trapping community, and uh, I'd like to to get together, do this again sometime, maybe in person, huh? That would be fun. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, sounds great. Uh, you take care. You too. Thank you. All right. Bye. Bye.